ultimate warrior's corner today. He's going to be on the side of the match man, Randy Savage. Three bullets going to win, whether he wants to or not. And welcome to episode 172 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, and once again, we are returning to our look at 1992 in the World Wrestling Federation. Joining me for this odyssey, as he has been originally since we were going to do just 1990. Obviously, we've gone all the way through now. We're talking 1992. We're approaching SummerSlam 92 on today's show. He's back with us again. All the way on the other side of the Atlantic via Cleveland, Ohio and the Top Rope Nation podcast. Thank you very much for joining me once again. Kyle Ross, how the hell are you, man? Liam, I am doing great. Uh, just ate some lunch, I understand. Uh, you just ate some dinner. That's I'm the ready. way it works <laughs> on uh, both uh, on the opposite sides of the Atlantic here with the time change. So we're both stuffed and I guess we're ready for dessert in the form of uh, 1992 WWF. Uh, uh, really looking forward to, to this program, buddy. Absolutely. Feed it to me because this is, uh, obviously this is this is a big one today because we're talking SummerSlam 1992, a very uh, historically impactful show for this country. And obviously we're going to be talking about all the aspects of television and business as we usually do. Uh, I know that one of the things that we're very excited about on this show, as we were on the last show, is that obviously the focus of the show is moving towards the television itself and the decisions being made that we're seeing on, uh, you know, impacting kind of business consequentially as opposed to the off-camera stories that we had, obviously, with Titan Gate. I implore everybody who hasn't checked out our previous episode and our previous shows covering the WWF in 1990, 91, and 92. You can, of course, go back and find them in the archives at squaredcirclegazette.podbean.com. You can find them on Spotify. You can find them on Podbean. Find them on iTunes. Go back and check it out. Come back here if you have to. But, Kyle, we are ready to rock and roll. 1992 Part 4. Yes, and I just wanted to take a moment uh, to remind the people of the journey we've been on here. You mentioned, of course, uh, that we started in 1990. It's been my pleasure, of course, to do all of these with you. I really look forward to those Monday Night War shows starting again, by the way. <laughs> uh, but, you uh, look, I don't need to remind... I, well, I'm going to remind everyone. I probably don't need to, but uh, I will. This has been the story ever since 1990 of a promotion in decline, then ravaged by scandal. Part three of our 92 series, it appeared we hit rock bottom with both business and creative at an all-time nadir. But now, over the next several shows, going into, because we're going to do 93, we've already made that decision, spoiler alert. So Mm -hmm. uh, for this episode, for the last episode of 92, and for the first three of 93, Every time we're going to start by looking at a rather dramatic shakeup done by the promotion in an attempt to rediscover lost glory. And here today, as you mentioned, Liam, we've got one that should be near and dear to many listeners' hearts, uh, including your own. Of course, this is obviously a very uh, monumental show. It was interesting, obviously, the timing of this because we've had Clash at the Castle last year and Money in the Bank is coming up in the O2 uh, later in this year. But with that being said, there was there were so many landmark aspects. I'm going to talk about the build-up, how this all kind of came to be uh, for SummerSlam 92 from a show perspective. From a fan perspective, I'm looking forward to talking about this, obviously. And I'm looking forward to getting your take on this, Kyle, because... You know, this is a very different type of show, and uh, I'm very eager to to get to our first chance to uh, put an impression on WF pay-per-view history. 
Yeah, obviously, I'd been following the product for many years, uh, had mm-hmm. been to shows. And, you know, in our last episode, we talked about stateside. Uh, the company was really, again, had its nadir popularity wise. But enough about the United States of America. Let us go over the pond to the United Kingdom. And first, uh, just a little bit of background. We're going to go back uh, and remind everyone. We briefly touched on this in part three before discussing how business went in the absolute shitter uh, <laughs> in the United States. But the European tour back in April, right after WrestleMania 8, a rousing success. I'm looking at the numbers here uh, right now, Liam, historyofwwe.com. I see multiple sellouts in Birmingham. Uh, oh. I see a sellout in Sheffield. I see uh, sellouts in London, Germany. Uh, I know that is not England, uh, everyone, but it is you know, in Europe. And they, they sold out there as well. Uh, just incredible business uh, done. And I wanted to ask you, what do you remember uh, about that tour specifically, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and the WWF's increasing popularity over there? Yeah, so my memory of the actual tour itself, I didn't go. I was not at this point a full-fledged wrestling fan when this tour happened. But this was around the time, because I, I would have been about four, five-ish. So I'm very, very young at this point. But I think I was five years old. I do remember people going to the show, because I lived in Birmingham at the time. So I do remember that there were a couple of people who went to the show who were my next-door neighbors, I believe. And uh, you know, a boy and a girl of a similar age, maybe a year or two older than me, but we were all friends. And them going to it. And again, it's just like throughout 1992, it seemed like I'm getting these little bits and pieces of wrestling becoming more and more in my line of sight. Kieran, my, bro- my brother Kieran had been a fan you know, long before this. Um, and he had been obviously kind of just obsessed with everything. We've been what- he'd been watching on Sky and things like that. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get the drip feed. He didn't get to go to the European tour either. Uh, that one there in uh, at April 92. But uh, yes, I, I started to become much more aware of it as SummerSlam approached. Let's put it that way. Yes. And on that note, we turn to the pages of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. And in the June 1st, 1992, 1992 issue, Dave Meltzer wrote, quote, SummerSlam 92 has been moved from Landover, Maryland to Wembley Stadium in England and moved up two days to August 29th. So they'll broadcast on its two-day tape delay. This move comes from wrestling in the U.S. hitting all-time lows while business in Europe is hitting all-time highs. So it only makes sense. If they can sell out, it'll be the second largest documented crowd for wrestling in history. Wow. WrestleMania three being the, the, the largest uh, that this was before Dave uh, exposed uh, <laughs> sort of that lie and probably the biggest gate ever, he goes on to say. <laughs> I love this uh, line. <laughs> you can comment on this. They're taking a chance in that it's an outdoor stadium and it rains a lot in England. Yeah, it's amazing how some things don't change in 30 years, but yeah. <laughs> okay. It's actually snowing today. <laughs> wow. It, it snowed horribly over the weekend here in Cleveland, but we're, we're all gone. The grass is green. Uh, but, Liam, enough about my grass. No one gives a damn about my lawn. Uh, <laughs> this is. Yeah, try, I don't know anything about it either. My wife mows the lawn around here. But uh, anyway, <laughs> Liam, this is your country. Please talk about what this meant, uh, getting SummerSlam uh, to UK WWF fans. And and does it rain a lot in England? Uh, yeah, absolutely rains a lot in England. The grass was greener on this side of the pond, though, for the WWF, as you mentioned there. Uh, <laughs> it would be pretty straightforward shit analysis to say that this was you know, this was a big deal and, and kind of say it like that. But it would definitely be accurate 
to say this was huge to the wrestling fans specifically. Um, it's worth pointing out for people who don't know this in America that this didn't get from my perspective at the time, didn't get to the playground chat because of the way that summer holiday falls at school where uh, our summer holiday is like from the middle of July to like the start of September. So pretty much the entire pre-SummerSlam period, obviously because they announced this you know, later than they needed to, um, was that there wasn't a lot of playground chatter, but I was very, very aware of it because there were a lot of wrestling fans who, like I said, my neighbors and my brother, other people, I just heard it a lot more. Um, from an advertising perspective, they did run ads, but back then Sky always did run ads for the big shows. Um, my memory isn't that there was this giant media blitz necessarily, that it was covered in, in newspapers. That I think there was. I was talking to Carl Jones, who, who's a contributor to the podcast as well, who did go to Wembley Stadium and did watch SummerSlam. So he kind of echoed my memory of it, that there were kind of some news pieces and there was some stuff in the sun. Um, but that does kind of touch on the fact that this is the period of time when I went from being aware that wrestling existed to paying a bit more attention to it. Um, I remember specifically, again, I lived in Birmingham at the time, there were people who would always talk about wrestling when they were together, and I remember them talking about SummerSlam and speculating on whether Hogan would be there at the show, which led to one kid uh, who's like the older kid, who you always have like a kid like this in the, in the, the local circles, <laughs> who's like, who got the word from their dad that Hulk Hogan wouldn't be there because he was going to be in prison for drugs at the time. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what, he wasn't far off, quite <laughs> frankly. I mean, you know, let, let's not make fun of that guy's dad. Maybe he was far reading the newsletters. <laughs> yeah. at, the, at the time, the, 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 most, the thing that I can remember being advertised the most during this summer was the Premier League adverts that Sky were pushing because they were doing the, the, the campaign of it's a whole new ball game because... Again, for those who I know that America has, has got the uh, the EPL, as they're calling it, and it's not being shown on the USA Network and stuff now. But for those who don't know, the Premier League was formed in 92. And mm. Sky bought the rights to air the games, the matches, for like £304 million, uh, £304 million um, which was like a landmark deal. It scooped it off terrestrial TV, which is like the, the equivalent of network TV, um, ITV and the BBC. And it changed that deal pretty much like, changed the face of television in this country because sky had been around for years but like it was a money loser and buying those rights it caused this seismic shift in sky's clout because it was this you know this feeling of hey football is the sport in this country and if you want to watch you know the biggest league in this country you have to pay and it conditioned people who i think were not necessarily conditioned to paying for television uh, in order to do that sky sports were, were, you know, they, they were smearing adverts for the premier league i remember but and that started in like the middle of august but sky sports were actually running a competition for the wwf where the winners would be flown to washington for the week to attend SummerSlam there with tickets included and spending money and all of that stuff right wow. before, right before the change in location hit um, and again, and another quick tip to Carl Jones, who I was talking to about this before. This was the first WF pay-per-view that was aired on Sky Sports. It used to be on Sky Movies. Um, it was Monday at 4 p.m. airtime. And uh, Sky Sports itself was only founded in 91. So it was, it was mostly just put on uh, Sky Movies previously. Now, broadly speaking, in terms of the impact on why I think this felt like a bigger deal than just the standard tour, obviously it's a pay-per-view. But there is, there is this 
huge debate. I mean, you have kind of touched on this personally when it comes to music and things like that. The, <laughs> the, the American influence on British culture and the kind of insecurity Britain sometimes has with that, or at least the institutions sometimes had with that at the time it felt uh, towards the end of the 80s and early 90s in particular. But this is a wrestling podcast. And so I'll say that anything that feels like a genuine slice of America that uh, feels legit, you know, kind of legitimized and not kind of isolated as a, as a token gets gobbled up here. At least, and, and at that time, was always going to get gobbled up. And I feel like that was the case. Doing the tour, it was always going to be hit. It was a hit. They'd already done you know great business here before. The idea that it was it was obviously ramping up. Interest was ramping up in this country. The WWF was one of the few really big hits on Sky TV in the in the eighties and late eighties. Um, by ninety one, a lot of people were watching it. They knew what was going on. We couldn't get enough, and to get a legitimate mega show that again had it, it, it's not just the it's the difference between a rebellion and an insurrection, if you will, <laughs> a, show, a show being done to cater to the audience to give us something that doesn't have a wider context or relevance. This was as relevant as it got. Everything that we were seeing on television was going to be paid off in this country. A, a, a huge event. It kind of it cemented England as WWF territory for years and years to come. And it kind of already was, although it didn't necessarily have to be, given given what we're, some of the things we're going to talk about shortly. But um, this was a very, very big deal. If you're a wrestling fan at the time, everybody will know and ha probably have memories about conversations with people about this show leading up to it. Okay, so I'm going to skip, skip this next little part I've decided that I have in our notes, Liam, because I think it goes better once we start talking about the ticket All situation. Right. But uh, I will mention, you know, you talk about American culture being uh, gobbled up over there in the UK. Now, uh, certainly, that did, and you joked about music, certainly uh, the WWF did not receive the kind of pushback from journalists that grunge music did uh, in, the, <laughs> exactly. in the wave of Britpop. Uh, yeah, I mean, heaven forbid, uh, you know, that. But again, that's a we could do that podcast for some other people <laughs> on a different day. I know you have a humorous story uh, well. somewhat about watching SummerSlam uh, <laughs> on that fateful day. My memory, we, again, this was a show that uh, it occurred during the school summer holidays. So we went, me and my family, we went away on a little caravan trip or something like that. Um, and we returned on the day of SummerSlam from this trip and as we get out of the car and we're walking back to our house our next door neighbor pulls us aside and breaks the news to us that our house has been robbed and burgled in our absence oh my god <laughs> so burgled i love that word by the way burgled so i thought this was a story you're going to tell because you told it on top rope nation before and i had to say i love the word burgled <laughs> yeah, I can't because, to well i'll just say this in america we don't say burgled we say your shit got broken into <laughs> but, but, but please continue yeah so we got our shit broken into and uh <laughs> to, to comfort us because we obviously we're just you know we're, we're me and my brother are crestfallen about the loss of you know important things like the television and the, the games consoles and stuff like that and oh my, my brother everyone's getting upset my mom starts to cry to calm us all down the next door neighbor puts on the television and there's SummerSlam. so one of my <laughs> first evocative memories of pro wrestling is the, the scene at the end of the warrior savage match when warriors standing on the outside holding the title before he goes back in to hold it to sat to give it to savage because i just turned on SummerSlam's on let's watch this this will calm everybody down and you want to 
chastise Vince McMahon for saying uh, he put smiles on people's faces. <laughs> when, you're a little, when you're a little kid just sitting there just devastated about your house getting broken into, and here comes SummerSlam 92 to brighten your day, there's Vince putting a smile on your face. Um, I do have a quick question, though. I'm a little Shoot. confused. Please set me straight. So you said you watched it on Monday, mm-hmm. and it aired because we're about ready to go into this and Meltzer's comments about the tape delay. It aired in the States on Monday. I thought it actually took place on Saturday, though. Yeah. SummerSlam. Yeah. So, um, it, so it, it, it also aired on Sky on tape delay as well? Yeah. It, it was not aired okay. live. It was, ta- it was okay. Yeah, it happened on the Saturday. We got it Monday at four. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So with that, we go to Dave Meltzer. Dave says, uh, this isn't the first tape delayed pay-per-view that the WWF has done, no matter what they claim. <laughs> the first WrestleMania was only live on the East Coast, for example, although it was advertised as being live everywhere. Uh, and of course, the No Holds Barred show, uh, this was the, not obviously he's not talking about the movie, some of the pay-per-view thing uh, where they ran a rematch of some Yes, the match, the movie. They ran a uh, rematch of the SummerSlam 89 main event in a cage. Uh, that was taped a couple weeks earlier. Uh, and I'll add to that, it was funny on TV. I don't know if you caught this, and I'm assuming they did this because you guys were getting the same interviews. Uh, when Mean Gene was doing the podium segments, he kept referring to SummerSlam as taking place, quote, in late August yeah, rather than very... date. In, in the event centers, or not the, or the SummerSlam reports, which were market-specific uh, to the U.S. and the U.K., there was an actual date, obviously, because you want people to know when the hell this thing is going to take place, if they're going to order it on pay-per-view. Mm. But, yeah, in the interviews that took place on TV, they kept saying late August because I'm assuming, you know, you and I, if if you, know, if you had been watching in real time, we were watching the same interviews. Yeah, yeah, and we, and, and, and things, I, 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 you, know, you wonder if this was taped when they were in the state of flux when they didn't know exactly what yes, they were going to do yet. True. Um, or if, like you say, it was because the air dates were going were kind of up in the air themselves as well. Yes. Um, yeah, as <laughs> I continue to, uh, explore, uh, the, uh, European territory here for those of us, uh, uh, in the United States. Interesting note, WCW's television show in England at this time was drawing 3.7 million viewers per week. Yeah. Whereas the WWF was only drawing a few hundred thousand and yet WCW Never goes over to see you guys. WWF goes over a couple times a year and makes millions. Please uh, clarify this uh, situation. Yeah, so again, it's to do with television. Uh, This was WCW Worldwide on ITV, the equivalent of a network station, uh, terrestrial TV. WF was on Sky, the pay channel, which less people subscribe to. Um, It was a Saturday afternoon slot, usually around 3 to 4 p.m. It did kind of move around, but it was always around that kind of time. That's WCW's. WCW's, yeah, yeah. Saturday afternoon, 3 to 4 p.m beautiful prime cherry you know position for the television um and WCW would finally get around to touring here in 93 and did big business with Davy Boy on the tour funnily enough um but this time slot and the audience is a fucking dream and when you consider the fact that WCW was losing money every year like all the time yeah. <laughs> like from, from the from, from the day Ted Turner bought it it was losing money and the, the fact that no one ever actually had the initiative to realize that this market was like booming People were watching their show. They knew what was going on. They were they were into it, and they never they never tried until like ninety three, is is a joke. 
you were too young, you said at the time to, to really be comprehend, you know, to, to have been paying attention to what was actually going on on the television mm-hmm. fears. But your brother, was he a bigger WWF fan than he was a WCW fan? He was WWF for sure. Yeah, okay. he had he had that the the very much the feeling. Of, I mean, he watched it all, but he was very much of the feeling that the WWF probably for a lot of the same reasons that I think that I remember you saying you did in terms of just things looking better. Okay. Um, I think that the, that that appealed that appealed very much. Do we have felt like the legitimate kind of the top tier uh, thing with how it's promoted and pushed? Was it going? Was WWF going on a pay channel for you guys? Sort of giving the impression like, oh, this is you know that you have to pay for you know you have to pay for the WWF. Where WCW is just something I can watch for free. Um, I I will say that I I do think there's probably something to that. There was something to the element of the prestige behind yeah you, know, you oh you gotta get Sky because the WWF's on it kind of a thing. Um, but having said that, I think that. I think if WCW and when WCW did come here, they did do big business. So um, mm-hmm. there probably is something to kind of the exclusivity and the allure of the WWF, especially that time when you couldn't get something as easily. It was a lot more kind of you know the forbidden fruit concept. It was quite attractive. And but the thing was, they also had Hogan, and everybody knew who Hogan was. Sure. And let's drill down now on SummerSlam '92 and get to this show. Uh, advertising begins in the European market, and although they've already booked the eighty-five thousand seat Wembley Stadium. WWF lied and said on the show that no venue had been decided yet? And, yeah. Okay, did you have clarification on that? Because later there is a press conference with the official announcement of Wembley, but was there a situation where Wembley had already been decided and they weren't publicly saying it? That's the impression I have, is that they were basically waiting. I don't know why, because they they, they had it. They had the stadium, but they just didn't. You know, I was reading an interview with Martin Goldsmith, who was the, the brother of the pro that we're going to talk about um, on the show, who, whose face, Harvey... Uh, Harvey Goldsmith does appear in the press conference that you're going to mention in a second. But um, yeah, that, that's my impression. So they, they, I don't know why they would delay, but they did. <laughs> uh, so neither Hulk Hogan nor Ric Flair, more on the latter later, uh, will wrestle on SummerSlam 92. Mm. Flair's name means nothing in Europe, says Dave Meltzer. So not uh, a big deal there. But this is the first WWF pay-per-view without Hogan. Very big deal, folks. And that, says Dave, will likely lead to the lowest pay-per-view buy rate ever. Please stay tuned to see if that prediction <laughs> is accurate. Um, Ric Flair, name means nothing in Europe at this time. Liam, is that an accurate statement? Uh, yeah, I guess so. But I think that this probably, it might, it might be a little less strong than that. This probably is the best argument for the fact that it was like, I hate the, the I even hate the word brand. But mm-hmm. I, but the fact that it was the WWF coming was the big deal. I mean, if it had had Hogan, it, it would be the cherry on the Sunday. But the, the fact that it was the WWF that was coming, it was like that. That was big enough. SummerSlam, the pay per view aspect, that was that was as big a deal as anything else. Yeah, and to that point, uh, you know, while, while pay per view numbers in the states were expected to be low, uh, tickets. Uh, over for you guys were a different story. Record first day sales uh, yeah. on TV. They had actually already taped an event center with Sean Mooney announcing a sellout even before tickets went on sale. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> I'll tell you what, that's, a, that's something your dad can be proud of right yeah. there. It's actually not a sellout yet. So it's a bit sketchy for them to announce a sellout. Uh, however, the idea is, I get this is what they were going for, uh, says Dave. WWE announces it's a sellout and makes it seem like such a hot ticket that people will have to run to buy closed circuit tickets instead. Now, it turns out they didn't even do closed circuit, though. No, so I don't know what the idea behind this was, honestly. I think, I, I do think that there is, uh, you know, a part of the thing is, hey, make it seem like it's like like it's hotter than it really is because, goddamn, they need, they need to do something to feel hot these days, this company. So. 
Sure. And, you know, as we continue, as time wears on, Dave writes, although the WWF continues to insist that SummerSlam sold 80,000 tickets on the first day, Wade Keller actually called the box office to check. I love that this happened. <laughs> and they say it's 70,000 tickets sold and you could still buy $22 balcony seats if you'd like. There was a lot of conversation about what the, quote, real first day week sales were. Uh, but the show, of course, does wind up doing 80,000 plus, which was a record at the time, assuming you believe Zane Bresloff, Dave Meltzer. Uh, Mania 32 winds up surpassing it. Uh, and between tickets and merch, this show, Liam, winds up making $3.6 million for the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, quite a bit of that looks like it was in green green foam fingers, as I remember from this show. So what <laughs> it's worth, uh, Martin Goldsmith, like you mentioned before, the brother of Harvey, who was the UK promoter for the WWF for the previous uh, European tours, he did an interview that I had read uh, a, a while back, and he said that it had sold 40,000 tickets on the first day. Um, mm. He also dropped a note in that said that Wembley Stadium were actually cynical about the WWF's ability to draw a full house at Wembley Stadium and had some kind of reservations about whether or not they'd do that. But they, they took the leap, um, they booked the show, and it did pretty darn well, as you say, 3.6 yeah. mil. Yeah, and in the August 23rd Pro Wrestling Torch, so obviously very close to the event, uh, Wade said that a thousand tickets were still available and available at half price, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, so again, there, there's some debate, but the, the end story here is this did big fucking business mm -hmm. over there uh, with you guys. Now, uh, there was also a note in the torch that there were some unhappy campers, literally, uh, because <laughs> uh, some folks who had camped out to get the tickets and we saw this, uh, you know, on TV, people camping out uh, outside. That's what you used to have to do before the internet folks <laughs> uh, for a hot ticket. Uh, they only got, but some of these campers only got rows 14 and 20 because employees of Coliseum videos, UK division, silver vision were given first dibs. Is this something that you know anything about? Have you, did you hear any complaints uh, through <laughs> the years through this, about this? I can't Anyone who got screwed? I can't say I heard anybody that got screwed over, but uh, I can see, you know, Silver Vision, they were the, they were, they were the people bringing the, the tapes to us. And since they uh, had a critical role in me becoming a forever fan of professional wrestling, uh, Silver Vision, they deserve the seats. Yeah, some talk, <laughs> the tickets were still available day of, but again, big business. Uh, a, a interesting note from the Repack Report, uh, listeners of Top Rope Nation are very <laughs> familiar with that particular uh, make-believe dirt sheet, but uh, my good friend Chad, he wanted me uh, to ask you about this Simon Cowell situation that he wanted, he, he saw the numbers that WWF was doing and wanted to like make an album with the WWF. Is this something you know? Uh, yes, that, that's very, very, uh, very popular. Well, not very popular, but it is what happened. Um, so Simon Cowell, folks will know him from an endless stream of uh, reality shows that I don't watch and probably <laughs> never will. Um, but he is the, he basically, it was one of his first, if not his first big hit, was the WWF album. He basically saw this, realized that like, it doesn't really even matter what, what I think he actually said in the interview once. It didn't matter if the, sing, the songs were any good or not. It was just the fact that you got them involved, you created a product, and you sell it over here. And I'm pretty certain that the WrestleMania song was on this album. The, the one that ends up being made, the Are You Ready for the Survivor Series? It was Jimmy Garvin's voice, and then it cuts into the, you know, whoa, WrestleMania. Fight that, to that was on that album. Oh, That's yeah. the one. It was, that was part of that, that album. 
Okay, wow. So Simon Cowell, we get his reference. Uh, reference. So there you go, the the repack <laughs> report again, you know, paying dividends for <laughs> podcasts you, across America. Okay, enough about the repack report. Let's talk about the SummerSlam you thought you'd never see. An interesting gimmick. And now we can talk yeah. about the television and the build, and it is a curious build. Uh, <laughs> an interesting, I shouldn't say curious, an interesting build, a unique build, Very. certainly. Because remember all those horrible feuds we talked about on the last show, Liam? I do, vividly. Plans change, pal! <laughs> uh, those are all out the window. And SummerSlam 92 is instead going to be headlined by two babyface versus babyface matches. Yes, two. Randy Savage versus the Ultimate Warrior for the WF title. And Bret Hart versus the British Bulldog for the Intercontinental title. Uh, Dave thinks uh, the odds are high for an IC title switch. You think, Dave? Uh, <laughs> Thoughts on Ric Flair not wrestling here, Liam? So he's kind of the odd man out. Uh, certainly yeah. wrestling is what Ric Flair is good at. But then again, as we've gone over, his name maybe doesn't mean much in Europe compared to Savage and Warrior, who are WWF mainstays. And, you know, if he's not working with either of those two, realistically, who could he have worked with? Well, that's it. I mean, it's, it's it's funny that we talk about it. I've always kind of had a bit of an affinity for that tagline, the SummerSlam you thought you'd never see, because... As we've gone through this, it's quite apparent that this is the SummerSlam that they didn't think they'd see about three weeks before this, yeah. they, they, they changed the show to Wembley. Because the idea, obviously, Flair not wrestling may not be a deal breaker in this country, but he's still like one of the top stars in the from a pay per view perspective, like in America. So I still find it kind of baffling that they that this was the place that he landed. But as you say, the four you know the four top baby faces in this co- company at the time are Warrior, Savage, Taker, and Brett. Three of those are taken, and Taker's the last one. And you know they're not going to do, you know, Taker Flair. They're not going to have a finish there, and I'm not really sure where that's going. And they, not they had a finish with the Taker match anyway. But still, it, I feel like Flair just kind of finds himself as an odd man out. The kind of consequence of the depth being so shy in this company at this point, and went when they kind of changed direction from what looked to be at first the Flair Savage match at SummerSlam. Maybe they got cold feet because of the way the houses were doing and they wanted to spice things up, whatever it was. When they made the shift to Savage and Warrior, Flair is very much kind of left with with Pete in hand. (laughs) Yeah. At one point, Meltzer has a report that Ric Flair would challenge Bret Hart for the IC title. But obviously, Mm. you know, putting Davey in that spot instead of shoehorning Flair makes a lot more sense given where the show is taking place. (laughs) Uh, Obviously... You know, we're, we're joking about plans change, pal. And the SummerSlam you thought you'd never see is, of course, going back to part three of this series. You know, it was Savage and Flair feuding over the world title. But uh, Liz leaves the promotion as her and Randy get a get divorced in real life. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then so much for Warrior Shango, which we <laughs> ripped on. Uh, you know, again, the Internet, oh, that Internet doesn't know what it's talking about. Oh, really? <laughs> Check me up, Bruce. Why'd you get rid of it then? Um, so, yeah, so so they basically ripped up, you know, all these summer programs that weren't working. We'll talk about the undercard later on, obviously. Interesting, you talked about what the main event could have been, the other possibilities. Basically, there's three options here for the world title match. Uh, you know, Brett and Davey, make, I think we everyone agrees, makes all the sense in the world. Yes, yeah, um, Because you need to put the British Bulldog in an important position. You're not going to put the world title on him. Cry it out loud. But you could have done Savage and Flair as the world title match, which one would think, okay, well, you're putting the title on Flair then in that spot. Mm. But Savage and Flair wouldn't, I mean, 
as you mentioned, was dead at the houses. So that's yeah. you know that's not going to draw on pay-per-view. You could have done a quickie title change like we had talked about in the last part with Flair beating Savage and then defending against Warrior here. But, yeah. you know, in both of those options that they didn't do, Flair versus Warrior and Savage versus Flair, where you would be thinking title change, given that you're giving the people what they want, the big title change with Davey, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. it feels like a world title change here was actually unnecessary. Almost, or at least in the sense that, you know, back during this uh, time period, it's very different than today, if you're a younger fan. It wasn't about just doing as much as you can on one pay-per-view. Promotions actually looked to do as little as they could, quite frankly. Uh, You know, they're like, oh, well, we're giving these people this big title change at the end, this big scene. We don't need to change the world title in the middle of the show as well. Um, So, quite frankly, Savage and Warrior, and we're going to get into it, was certainly more intriguing than what they had. I mean, with Liz gone, they had nothing for Savage and Flair no. at all. I mean, that would have, that was dying on the vine. And considering that Warrior and Shango were feuding, it, it feels like Warrior just dropping that. And all of a sudden, even though, I mean, he's obviously chasing the world title regardless, I think, you know, chasing Ric Flair, it just, I think it would have been too hard a right turn. So I actually think, I think whether this pay-per-view was going to be in the States or the UK, I believe this is the right main event back, given where they were at at this time. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. Especially when you look at the when you look at the alternatives and you think about because the other possibilities they had done in SummerSlam's past would be to do some kind of scenario that they ended up doing for Survivor Series, where it ends up being like in a tag team scenario, where it was going to be Savage and Warriors a team against Flair and somebody else by by kind of cross pollinating feuds. But that alone is not. Yeah, I don't really know how hot things were to be able to put that as a pay-per-view main event in 92. And so if you're looking at it from the standpoint of, okay, we only have to, you know, in terms of like delivering for the live crowd, Bretton Bulldog's going to give them what they want. So since that's the case, you know, the title, you know, the, the world title change on that show seems like it wouldn't be necessary. Like you say, a tag match isn't going to deliver the pay-per-view numbers that you need. You need something that the US audience, in theory, is going to draw to because Bulldog wasn't going to mean anything on pay-per-view. And that's kind of the that's kind of the other unsung thing here is I know that like and we're going to talk about the, the the build to the television, but Bulldog was not a money player at this point. No, he in wasn't. the US, and no, you could argue wasn't. maybe he never was. Yeah, but, yeah. No, but, no. You know what? Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. No, I was I was gonna I was just gonna wrap that up and say because Bulldog at that point wasn't a money player in the US, maybe never was as a big money player in the US. Um, they had to have something that they thought was going to deliver on pay-per-view if that was the number two match. And, and every sign for Savage and Flair was that that was not the match to do. You know what? I'm going to um, correct myself from a few moments ago. I've decided I was wrong about something. I think if this pay-per-view was in the States, you had to do Flair and Warrior with Warrior winning the title because yeah. you're not because you're not doing Bretton Davey. Yeah, States. yeah, true. You, you, you're, prob- you're probably doing, as they has long been rumored, Brett and Sean in the ladder match, and Sean's probably winning. So you have to give the people in the states. So I'm gonna I'm gonna correct myself there. I think if this is in the states, you have, they would have changed the title from Flair uh, or from Savage to Flair, and Flair would have probably dropped it to Warrior. But they didn't do it in the states. It was done in the UK. Uh, you've got Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior in a babyface versus babyface situation. So let's break down that feud and angle, Liam. Yes. Uh, Ric Flair 
the odd man out. By the way, SummerSlam, we talked about doing a tag match potentially. Tag matches had main evented, remember, three of the first four SummerSlam. Oh, that's it. That's it. That's why I, that's my, my gut is like when you look at the scenario, it's like I'm surprised since that's the playbook they ran with that they would. But again, maybe it's just because the situation was just so fucking weak that they were just like, we need something well, that feels like it's got more of a pop to it. And, and And because, and we'll talk more about this in the next part, like they've been thinking about doing a Mr. Perfect Mm-hmm. baby face turn all, all along. I, I I don't know. I mean, maybe they could have got him to come back here. Maybe, but you know, they could have done Savage and Warrior versus Perfect and Flair. I, I, I don't know. They, they, you know, Perfect could have come back early, but I, I don't know about that being Perfect's return just to team up with Ric Flair as a heel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that, 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 that doesn't sound as good as what they wound up doing, but again, um, uh, let's talk about what they did do here in the build of yes. SummerSlam 92. Okay. So Flair's the odd man out in this scenario. So he and Mr. Perfect start stirring things up by negotiating, quote unquote, with each side to be in their corner and playing the baby faces off each other. Ric Flair has a great quote uh, on television (laughs) uh, to the warrior, quote, I've been beating people who paint their faces for my entire career. Uh, Phenomenal. Yeah. uh, Obviously an allusion to Sting and Flair's rivalry with him over WCW. Uh, This was kind of a sign, I guess, not that they were thinking of, putting over the warrior at SummerSlam, but that flair and warrior was a direction post SummerSlam, right? Yeah, I I think so too. I think it was definitely more because that was where things were going to end up, or at least were supposed to end up a great line. Obviously that the beating people who paint their faces for their entire career. And the intrigue for this whole thing starts with flair telling warrior that savage and perfect were talking and, and then ultimately said, Hey, perfect's up for the highest bidder. So, you know, he just throws that out there on this promo with Gene on the podium, to which Warrior says that he'd do anything and pay any price to be the champion again, which was quite the thing. And in the following week, you have Savage interviewed by Gene on the podium, same kind of scenario. And Gene kind of says that, and, and Warrior, um, obviously who had done the thing with um, with Flair the previous week, kind of gets uh, you know, referenced by Savage as well. You know, if, if Warrior is uh, shaken with the idea of me and, me and Perfect working together, it doesn't really make any sense for me to deny it, which I liked. Because it's that thing of, okay, planting the seed that Savage knows he wants the advantage on Warrior anyway, even if he, if, if he all has to play along with this smokescreen to kind of do it. It's kind of an intriguing little situation. Then Perfect confronts Savage and says that Warrior is now contacting him and bidding Sky High as well. And this whole scenario kind of goes back and forth, builds to the tag on the SummerSlam Spectacular with a, it's Warrior, Warrior and Savage as a team against the Nasties which leads to the outside the ring scene where Flair and Perfect are just kicking the shit out of the Warrior as the Nasties beat up Savage, which leads to Warrior accusing Savage of kind of you know, paying Flair and Perfect to soften him up. And Savage kind of saying that, well, Warrior must be the one who sold out because if I myself had sold out, I'd pay, I'd pay Flair and Perfect to beat me up too to throw people off the scent for SummerSlam, which... I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot in there that gets convoluted a little bit. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about that in a little bit. Um, the, the very first promo, the one where Perfect and Flair later come out and Flair delivers the, uh, I've been beating people who paint their faces my entire career line. I really like when Savage gets in Warrior's face and is like, I'm the WWF champion and you're not. Yeah. There's a real intensity and a tension between the two baby faces. And yes, I think a lot of people are familiar with this, obviously. It's, you know, it's basically a, a who sold out storyline yeah. with both, ba- with, you know, Flair and Perfect saying, oh, this guy, we, we might be in this guy's corner. Oh, or we might be in this guy's corner. And both baby faces 
are denying it. Um, something I didn't like and I thought kind of poisoned the well, so to speak, is because it's just more confusion. And this isn't what they'd done previously mm. uh, with pay-per-view main events. Flair was talking about, well, I could be championed by SummerSlam. And, 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 or he, and he also, this was bizarre. He, he was referring in several promos to like him and Mr. Perfect as one entity. He kept saying, <laughs> me and the perfect one will be the champion again. I was like, what? Yeah, which again kind of leads me to that thing of wondering if Perfect was going to come back as a heel. I know that people have been talking about him as a baby face like, you know, for a while at this point. But it's like the way that they do that just feels like, feels like they're setting something up, especially when you've got these four personalities interacting. It feels like that's where this is heading, and ultimately, obviously, it doesn't. Um, Flair saying that he could be champ by SummerSlam, I didn't like either, but I imagine that it's because they're still doing, at this month, Savage and Flair on the house shows for the title. Yeah. So yeah, they're but, trying to tie the idea that, well, maybe it won't be Savage and Warrior anyway, so whatever. Yeah, I just never like when there's a pay-per-view main event announced and the promotion undercuts it by saying it could change. That's something I absolutely mm. 189% loathe about the modern yeah. WWE when it's like the Royal Rumble winner, it's like, well, he'll just challenge whomever the champion is. And, you know, then it's like, oh, well, can, can they get past the Elimination Chamber? There's all these roadblocks. <laughs> Rather than just freaking creating a match people want to see and hyping it to death. Call me old-fashioned, but that's what I like. And, again, uh, on that note, Liam, we talked about this uh, at Survivor Series 91 with Hogan Undertaker. Uh, at WrestleMania 8 with Savage and Flair. A pay-per-view main event is announced. And then the angle is created afterwards. Yeah. I don't. It, that, it, that 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 wasn't their formula for a long time. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it was just late decisions. So they felt like yeah. they didn't have the. Because again, like way back when, we were talking about how you know right after when this all started, a big part of the reason why this series started, Warrior was known to be destined for Rude almost immediately after WrestleMania. They, mm -hmm. they, 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 they were planting the seeds for the SummerSlam match months in advance. So when you have a situation like this where they are just basically pulling matches, and when you watch the TV, it's so jarring. Like, we're yes. doing this in two parts, so it's going to seem to our listeners like this is a fairly kind of fluid situation. When you're watching the TV week to week or when you watch a highlights deal, it's like all of a sudden, and by the way, The Undertaker is wrestling Kamala. Like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, let, let me jump in on that. Because so I was old enough to obviously watch TV. And I'm at this point, I'm almost 12 years old mm -hmm. when this show happens. And I talked about this a little bit. I don't know why, but I did talk about it with Gareth Gonzalez uh, over at F4W Online. Uh, and I talked like this was the period of time where I was kind of good, and it wasn't hard to do, obviously. I'm not like saying I'm some sort of savant, but like <laughs> I could predict the next pay-per-view card. Like, I, yeah. I liked doing it. I was like, okay, well, they just shot it. You know, I didn't use these terms, but they shot an angle between these two. So, all right, well, I'm going to expect that's going to be on SummerSlam. And I remember watching the television, to your point that you just made around this period, and they would just announce these random matches for this show called. I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. Like, the, the whole, like, just to double back here, this Savage Warrior announcement on television comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And, and it's it just like, all right, Summer 792, the main event's going to be Randy Savage of the Ultimate Warrior, even though Savage had been feuding with Flair and Warrior had been feuding with Shango. There was absolutely no interaction between the two on TV. Um, and, you know, the, the storyline before 
perfect and Flair start stirring shit is Rick is upset that he's the odd man out. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was some tension with him and perfect uh, as well there. But yeah, they, they just and it's it's going to go. You joked about Undertaker Kamala. It's true for Brett and Davey. Yeah. All of these matches were announced cold. And then they shot an angle, which is a very uh, interesting way to promote a pay-per-view. Obviously, it was going to do huge numbers in terms of attendance and live gate because you guys were going to go no matter what the matches were. But here in the States, we'll get back to it. That could have been a problem <laughs> uh, for pay-per-view because it, it was it, this really was kind of the first time you saw the old, like I joked, plans change, pal. Yeah. Because WWF, for its history up until this point, was very set in stone. Like, even if shit sucked, they saw it through to the end. But yeah. uh, here they just yeah. kind of ripped it all up and said, fuck it, we're going with these matches. And, um, and, 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 in, and in classic fashion, there is nothing that... Uh, the thing is, they are so... You can tell. Just the tagline, the SummerSlam you thought you'd never see, they're aware of that fact like they, they, they're, trying to, they're using it as part of the marketing for the show that like yeah so we kind of know that this is a bunch of stuff out of nowhere and we're going to tell you why you should care now yeah yeah leaning into it i guess was at least being self-aware like you said yeah. whether it's effective we'll we'll find out here in a few moments although you, let's be honest we already know the answer anyway <laughs> uh you mentioned the savage warrior nasty boys match that took place on the summer slam spectacular i think people should make it a point to watch that it's not a great match okay it is not <laughs> all right it's not certainly going to be one of the great tag matches you could ever consume but uh can they coexist at this point had not been beaten into the ground yet although they did do something similar with hogan warrior against perfect and genius uh if people go back to part one of our 1990 series so that whole match deal angle felt pretty novel watching it back some 30 years later. I enjoyed it. I thought Vince McMahon was pretty incredible at selling the title match yeah, he was. during it. And my God, the Ultimate Warrior even did a double DDT on the nasties. <laughs> he had his working boots on. He did. Yeah. I mean, that caught me, uh, you know, uh, by uh, or caught me off guard. Um, we also need to examine here this storyline, Liam. Uh, of whose corner is Mr. Perfect going to be in yeah. versus the rumored idea. This is always, this was always kind of the internet urban legend. I don't know if they really were thinking about it. Has anyone inside of WWE ever admitted that they were thinking this? I've not heard any, but okay. this is like the ultimate playground rumor. <laughs> like okay. made its way around. So, magazines there, or something. so there is the rumor that existed that and the torch talked about this. They had a cover story on it at the time that the idea was, or a possible idea WWF was thinking about this time was Papa Shango possessing the warrior leading to a possible heel turn. It's a horrible idea. Oh, it's. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just. I mean, I mean, I mean. There, you know, I mean, other than Wyndham Rotunda, does anyone think that idea would be good? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do love the. Uh, they, they like if they were going to go so all in on Papa Shango, the idea that he would be the mastermind behind an Ultimate Warrior heel. So this guy who's like not over at all at this point, really. Shango's yeah. like dying on the vine here. It's that this angle's on its ass, and he's going to be the reason why the Ultimate Warrior goes dark. Like, it's come on, man. Let's that would have been very bad. This. It would have yeah, been so poor. Yeah, and we'll talk about while well, you know later on in the show why Papa Shango may have been dropped mm. so swiftly. There, there, there. Uh, was was something uh, to that, I believe. But uh, before we get to the match itself between uh, Savage and Warrior at SummerSlam, 
Meltzer really seemed to enjoy the build uh, for this WF title match. So did Wade. Did you? Yeah, I did. I, I, I like... I like the go-home promos yes. for this show that both guys do when they're both talking. This is not on the podiums. This is not in front of the live crowds. It's both guys separately talking reflectively. Reflect, let me try that again. Reflectively about everything that's happened up to this point. And it's trying to like piece together bits and pieces of evidence presenting their case for why the other guy is the one that's sold out. And it's really good. It's well done. You know, they, they have the B-roll over the top showing things to say, well this happened and then this happened and then you know oh the warrior came down to save me when when flair and perfect jumped me in the ring but you know he made sure to wait first before he ran down he barely touched them when he got there like one shot to perfect and then like that's it yeah yeah mm-hmm. these little things where it's like ah, oh, this is you know it actually feels like somebody's thinking here like this this is not the you know oh my god just how real is papa shango's voodoo this is actually trying <laughs> to get people to have their brains working and 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 kind of get engaged on it which is which is good um there's some fairly open bits of logic, <laughs> granted, <laughs> that they could have hit harder to make things feel more impactful. There's a couple of criticisms that I think stop this from being widely considered a smash hit of a storyline. And I know that there are some people that don't like it. I know when we uh, I listened to your uh, the Top Rip Nation podcast um, classics review of SummerSlam 92, which I implore people to listen to. Um, there were people, you know, I, I think Ryan didn't particularly like the match and story that much as I remember. And I can understand why. And part of it is because there are some things that when you watch it do kind of like stick out like a sore thumb. First, Elizabeth is now just a complete non-factor in everything in this whole triangle. Since she's gone, you know, she's not referenced. It's not like they put a bow on the story and said, you know, she died on her home, you know, way back to her home planet or something like that. She's just, <laughs> she's out of the picture. She's gone. She's done. But that doesn't mean the fans have forgotten what's going on or that yes. they've forgotten what they were hitting so hard a few months ago, even after WrestleMania, when it was already feeling like a dead horse and Flair's beating it on the, uh, on the radio with his, with his fantastic <laughs> answering machine, playing back the answer phone on his stereo. You know, it's like it felt tied and laid, played out then, but they were still trying to hit us with, with how important this is and why we sure. should care so much. And now Savage, like the thought of Savage working with Flair isn't really even acknowledged as being that much of an obstacle. It's just assumed that everybody knows, you know, what they know. But at the same time, it's like they're talking about like it's a real possibility and no one's really mentioning, well, it probably won't happen because of what happened with his wife. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, like, like, it's, right, it's right there. To, it's like an elephant in the room they don't want to talk about, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that was what Ryan and maybe Justin said as well, that, it, it, you know, after the feud that Savage and Flair had had, you know, Flair kisses the guy's wife at WrestleMania, the idea Savage would work with him, you know, especially after that promo he cuts. Yeah, well, that's it. It's like, yeah. It, it, it does seem like a leap of faith, yeah. So it so does. it's like, so if, if the Flair Savage thing wasn't working for you and they hit this thing that Savage might, you know, lean on Flair's help, it's almost like, what? Like, why? And then, like, but if you were invested still, if you were still caring because what they did at WrestleMania did work for you because the promos were so good then it even more flies in your face of like, oh, why would this happen? It doesn't really feel plausible. You know, it's just, it's, and, and again, it's the WWF. You don't acknowledge a character that's not there anymore, but it's one of those things where if they'd have actually kind of leaned into it a little bit and kind of, you know, hit one of the other things that they didn't hit really all that hard in the build, which is the fact that Warrior had already beaten and in theory retired Savage at Mania 7. And so the idea that Savage felt like he was, you know, heading to the gallows, and, you know, was going to desperately maybe reach for the one person he maybe hates the most. 
to save the title because that actually means the world to him. If, if they'd have leaned into some of this stuff, it actually may have worked better than it did. Just acknowledge what it is, tell the story that way. But again, that's just not their MO. You know, the, the whole idea that Savage threw everything at Warrior at Mania 7 couldn't win and felt pressure to work with the enemy, I think could have worked. But, you know, they didn't do it. I like what they did. Um, some of the stuff that I mentioned there, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be hit on, but I think the story feels tighter if they do. And I think that it might be, you know, the fact they, they kind of leave it a little bit, that WWF, you know, open-ended kind of airy, fluffy nature, I think maybe why it uh, didn't land with some people. Yeah, and another another criticism I have is I'm watching this, and I really like those go-home promos too, the recaps. Mm. I love those. I wish we saw more of them uh, on wrestling television these days. I love you, Chris Harrington, over at AEW. Uh, <laughs> and I know you've got some nice, fancy spreadsheets, but until I see a great video recap die on the ratings on Dynamite, I'm going to always yell at you that you should have more stuff like that on your television. But More exposition. Yeah, but I, I'm watching savage and warrior explain the storyline from each of their own perspectives you know savage claiming warrior being attacked was a ruse that he set up with flair versus and i couldn't help but think for a 1992 wwf audience especially this storyline did get a little convoluted Mm. in addition to the leap of faith you were talking about that, okay, could we really buy that Savage would work with Flair after everything he'd been through? Yeah. Plus, and I think this is a big one, they are basically selling this pay-per-view on the idea that one of your favorites will be turning heel. And I don't know if that's a good idea. Yeah, that, that's a bit. That's actually an underrated and unspoken big deal for why I think this is not necessarily the best idea. So I think that from a story perspective, something like this works perfectly so long as you don't have those things that slap you in the face as, uh, you know, um, disconnects, like a bridge too far. You know, that thing about, you know, the, the, the convoluted nature of Savage claiming why being jumped was a ruse. It's like, okay, we're, we're, we're along, you know, but don't, don't be that stupid because you're expecting us to think. Once you're trying to get us to think critically, once something gets thrown in there that makes no critical sense, all of a sudden the whole thing falls apart. But the underlying thing of this, as you said, almost even more than the fact that the belt's on the line, is which one of these guys is is a prick? <laughs> which one of your favorites is going to let you down? <laughs> you know, pay to see. And it's like, you know, granted it worked for some of those those kids before SummerSlam when they interviewed them, and 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 their you know friendships seemed like they were being strained as they were arguing about whether it was Warrior or Savage that sold out. But um, you know, so it worked on them. But I I feel like uh, yeah, it's it's not. I feel like it becomes less about who's when it becomes less about who's going to win and more about who's going to fuck somebody over. I think that you lose a little bit of something. Yeah. Okay. Match itself. Uh, obviously, it's not as good as WrestleMania Seven, but very yeah. few matches in the, his- in the history of pro wrestling are as good as what they did at WrestleMania Seven. That was a sort of once in a lifetime performance. You know, just the crowd really bought the stakes of the career-ending stipulation. Uh, the Re, uh, reunification of Savage and Liz making grown adults actually cry in the crowd. You can't recreate that, man. You just can't. No, uh, and- no, you, you can't. You can't at all. And again, the other reason I think that this probably isn't remembered as fondly is mm-hmm. because the payoff itself at SummerSlam is that neither of them actually did take the money. So, all in <laughs> when you actually see the whole story. It just feels like wasted energy and false drama, which, you know, when you look at it with the modern lens of, of WWE, it's like almost everything for the last 20 years is wasted energy and false drama that leads nowhere. 
you know, oh, oh, we're going to tell you this is important until we decide we don't give a shit anymore. And then none of that matters, historically speaking. And then, you know, the match happens. The match itself, very good. Like you say, not in the realm of Mania 7. I agree completely. It does play well into the intrigue of the match when you got like perfect doing like a little thing here to one guy, then a little thing there, and it seems more extreme. And then in the end, that feeling of, okay, so really the only thing you actually were building to is something you didn't deliver. Yeah, which is no good. Now, interestingly enough, second pay-per-view in a row, WrestleMania 8 being the first with uh, Savage and Flair, world title doesn't go on last. Yeah. Because obviously Brett and Davey are, are getting to go last here, which makes sense, especially given the finish. The finish is, of course, a countout finish. Once it becomes apparent that, um, you know, uh, you know, Savage obviously knows internally that he didn't sell out. Once he realizes that Warrior didn't sell out, he comes off the top onto Flair. Flair hits him with the chair coming down, and mm-hmm. it's a countout loss for Savage. I agree. Not in the realm of Mania 7. My official star rating would be three and three-quarter stars, whereas Mania 7 is like four and three-quarters, five. Yeah. Uh, even uh, you could make an argument. So a, a very good match. I, I, you know, I loved the beginning of the match. There was a real intensity. Oh, to it, yeah. And then where, throw like, the jacket off. Oh, my God. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. So there, there was... So, Certainly with the live audience, I don't know how much was storyline and how much was just the novelty of seeing these two big stars ready to, you know, clash. But there was some good heat in there. And yeah, I thought Vince did a great job on commentary, you know, speculating who Perfect had, you know, uh, who 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 had paid him off. And then, of course, ultimately, it, it, neither guy paid him off. It was just a ruse. And we will yeah. get to... Plan B, as they say, Flair and Perfect say later on. But a uh, little note here on the Ultimate Warrior outside the ring. Uh, apparently, he finally got the hint that everyone knew he was being allowed to pass the steroid tests. <laughs> so he's now wearing a bodysuit with muscles painted on while he gets off the juice. <laughs> God bless him. He, he wanted to change his look a little bit, or they wanted to change his look. I'm not sure which, but he, uh, he comes out from an interview during this period with very Rick Rude-esque airbrush tights on um, and then wrestles in the painted leotard in the Nashley's match, the, 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 uh, the SummerSlam um, spectacular build-up match. At least his hair was back to looking like the original Ultimate Warrior, so he's got that going for him. <laughs> Um, uh, yes, one of the other playground legends that this yeah. was a different Ultimate Warrior because 11-year-olds couldn't understand, yeah, he was on the gas. Yeah, he wasn't on. <laughs> well, although apparently here he still is on the gas, just not just not as blatantly on the gas as not he would have been, blatantly. say, in 87 and 88 because, I mean, yeah, I think if you if you look close, I think it, there's a reason those tassels were tied so tight in 87. Ah, uh, indeed. Although, like you said, it's funny because you're talking about you know, playground talk. I, I, I'm glad... I think it was on the the uh, the classic show you guys did. I'm glad that it was caught that the fans in the match were gravitating to Warrior over Savage, because I, mm. I, that that is something that I remember at the time. Again, just among the circle of friends and general feeling that I had at the time was that Warrior was a much bigger deal to people in this country than Savage was. Yeah, and <laughs> that's they like Savage point. still, but you know, Warrior was seen as like the top star. Yeah, as, as we've talked about, you know, ad nauseum here on the program, 
for some reason, Randy Savage just wasn't clicking as much as he should have mm-hmm. been in this comeback run, this post-retirement match run. I don't know. Maybe we could do an entire podcast one day examining why that is. We've yeah. talked about that, like, he was kind of Mr. Elizabeth. You know, he's wearing <laughs> a shirt. Maybe people felt ripped off because he lost a retirement match and was back. Maybe yeah. people believe in the storylines. I don't know. But uh, this is not the end, although we are going to gravitate away uh, from Savage Warrior to Bretton Davy here in a moment. We're not done talking about the world title. Uh, we will get back to it uh, later on in the program because, uh, spoiler alert, there is a WWF title change we're going to talk about today. Uh, but Intercontinental title. Yes, we all know there's a title change there as well. The build for Bret Hart and Davey Boy Smith, Liam, as you know, was completely built around the fact that these two are real-life brothers-in-law, which was a shocking admission for WWF at the time. I remember, again, this match is announced cold. I'm not expecting it. I'm sitting, you know, in my parents' house. Bret Hart will defend against Davey Boy Smith. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then Gene comes on and says, oh, by the way, oh, by the way. These two are brother-in-laws. Davy Boy Smith is married to Bret Hart's sister. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, th- this was, like I said, a pretty shocking WWF storyline for the time to actually tap into quote-unquote real life. Yeah, the, the announcement, obviously it feels out of nowhere, as you said, um, mirroring the quick venue change. I, I, I find it very curious that, I mean, I, I like the fact I'll give them this. I'll give them. The, I'll give them some credit here. I like the fact that considering they clearly came up, with, this is one of those things they came up with backwards. What do we want? Okay, let's have Bulldog win the belt mm-hmm. at SummerSlam in Wembley. Okay, we're gonna have to do a babyface match. What can we do? Well, they are related, so maybe we can make a bigger thing about. We can bring that to life. We can make a big thing about it, which they do. They 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 talk about the the family. They get the family on there to to do the interviews and stuff like that. They make something of it, and it's it's quite it's it feels very different. It feels like a very a stark departure from from programs of the past. You know, it doesn't. You can kind of count the ones that feel like they're in this ballpark of reality on one hand. You know, you're probably thinking about like you know again. Sure, we've had like the Savage Elizabeth stuff, but even like the Jake and Cheryl Roberts uh, stuff with Rick Rude, like you know, tying in something that's real and making us kind of go down the family route feels fresh and novel and especially when it's two baby faces i liked it yeah yeah and you know whether you you know i mean so there are always these people ah, that's not true that's just that's a story but it mm. when real or not there was an authenticity i think you believed i don't think anyone was questioning the fact that they really were i mean it wasn't phony at all uh, i want to get to some of the promos yeah here in a bit uh, i thought i too thought the family angle was a good hook i don't know what what other thing you could have done oh there's nothing else <laughs> to, to provide there's there was nothing, nothing else, else obviously um they, they kept talking in the build, Brett and Davey, though, as the weeks of TV went on about, oh, I don't want to have this match. And I was wondering, and I, and I couldn't think back to when I, was, when I was 11 if I thought this or if I'm just being too nitpicky. Do you think there was a thing? It's like, okay, well, you, you guys don't want to have this match. Well, why are you wrestling then? <laughs> like, like it, it kind of felt like, I don't know if they really, the, the one kind of loose end they didn't tie is like why the match like had to happen. I don't know if they, because it was announced cold. It wasn't like Davey Boy Smith had like, you know, like now what they would do is like he would win some like fucking stupid arbitrary contenders match. Yeah. Like he was just, 
he was just cold put in an intercontinental title match. And, you know, Brett tried his best to like, oh, Davey's been on a real roll and he's like worked his way to this match. But it was sort of like, yeah, neither of us want this match for the fan. I mean, I guess Davey, from Davey's perspective, he wants the intercontinental title. Yeah, of course. So, I I mean, I guess, am I being too nitpicky here? Am I looking for something that isn't? No, I think that that's, you're not, you're not wrong. Because when you think about this, it's like you are, and you did at the time, you're observing this as it's being dished out to you with a stream of consciousness thinking. And this thing, see, that this is where Bulldog <laughs> falls short. Because he, to me, he's the one to blame. He's the, he's the challenger here. And he's the one who has to say, look, I know this is you know, devastating, but this is like a big thing. This is the Intercontinental title at Wembley Stadium. This has to happen. And Brett, I think, because I think Brett does his part well. I yes. think that he, he, he does his part the way he should. It's on Davey, and Davey's... I know this will surprise people, but Davey Boy Smith's promos were fucking awful in the build-up to this. This <laughs> one in particular where he like he's just basically rambling, puts his hands together, and just says, the families will reunite when the better man wins. And that's the end of the promo. And it's like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, what, why, Tell me why you want the Intercontinental title. Tell me why, you know, this is such a... a I just felt like Davey's, Davey's stuff not being airtight and not really pushing the fact that like he needs the intercontinental title this is the biggest chance of his life to win it in Wembley and do it for the country and he has to sacrifice that right now there are going to be some family issues because this big giant match has to happen and we knew when we were getting into this business that this is what it's all about it's like that you know, he could have hit that harder didn't and because he doesn't doesn't and he delivers these like little lines that he's clearly been told to say because they they it felt like they filmed all these promos in one day and then Davey buggered off to do coke with Nightheart for the summer or something and yeah. then like it's like it, it just feels like there's 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 just that little bit of heart missing from Davey boy in his in his delivery which is kind of why I feel like there's a missing component yeah you mentioned Brett doing his part I agree do you think he came off a little heelish Oh, for sure. His, uh, and that was by design, correct? You th- yeah, because you, know. you don't want to split the crowd. And, and the whole idea is that Davey has to be the baby face. So let Brett be the guy. Brett's fucking great. At one point, like, Gene just asks him, like, yeah, and we'll talk about why, like, you know, uh, how, how much of an impact it is. And he just kind of flippantly just like, yeah, well, you know, you got to accept it in wrestling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's after they show, uh, you know, an interview with uh, with his mother, Helen, crying or whatever. Yeah, he does. yeah I, I think that's what caught me. Like, he, he wasn't, like bothered by it it seems it was kind of like all right well i've got this title defense i understand the family's upset but i'm going to defend my like i want to hold on to the intercontinental title family be damned he he did a much better job from his perspective mm-hmm. than davy boy does which is not a shock uh no. considering anyone who has followed the the respective careers of these two gentlemen bret hart um you know what he has a story he believes in We'll mm-hmm. talk about one that he maybe didn't believe in a little bit later on but uh, what he has a story <laughs> he believes in he's really good at you know giving you know uh, at, at selling you on his perspective um let's talk about kind of the family stuff here uh you know the, the promos building up to it Liam you called a treat uh talk about some <laughs> of the stuff we got all right so there's a lot of dramatic eye touching from Helen and <laughs> Diana in their efforts to simulate human emotion when when they're being quizzed about the strain on the family life um mm. like I say Brett plays it well as he often does when there's a threat of reality to it because it's easier for him to 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 get into um the star however of this build-up kyle and you know he is is bruce hart bruce hart who takes his shot and takes the the opportunity in in front of in the backyard (laughs) ring 
in the backyard ring. Yeah, in the backyard ring, and he's there with his fucking leather jacket and his shades. Takes the opportunity to rip on his own brother on national television, um, saying that Brett's ego is so damn big that he can't get a grasp on reality. And it was yeah. just fucking brilliant. Bruce is like standing there, and it's <laughs> almost like he's like trying to show, you know, whoever's producing the segment. I could be the hitman. Yeah. Don't you see it? Like, I could be the hitman. How, how does the hitman Bruce Hart sound? Forget about the hitman Bret Hart. Yeah. I just, I I, 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 lo- I loved watching this because anytime, you know, Bruce, Bruce is an amusing uh, character anyway. But, like, I remember when, I don't think I've ever told anybody this, so this will be a first. So when I interviewed Bruce uh, for the Brian Pillman book, um, he was talking, also I was quizzing him about Bad Company, um, the, the team that him and Brian had in Stampede, and kind of talking about the look. And the reason this came to mind is because he's standing there in the leather jacket and the shades, which is you know what they wore in Bad Company, along with the bandanas and stuff. And he told me, Bruce goes, you know, Brett come, you know, Brett was in the WF and you know, he'd come back down to Stampede and he took one look at us in the leather jackets and the sunglasses, and he just laughed and just kind of thought we were being stupid and dressing like that. And sure enough, when it comes time for the Heart Foundation to get a look, there he is in leather jackets and sunglasses. <laughs> I'm just like, it's, like, it's like basically insinuating that the Heart Foundation was stolen from bad company, which I don't know. I just I, it always amused me whenever I see Bruce in the leather jacket and the sunglasses. I, I always I just, think of that. I whenever I think about Bruce Hart on WWE TV, I always think about SummerSlam '93 and like how hard he's trying to steal the show from Owen when it's the <laughs> two of them there, and Bruce is like trying. He's always trying to make sure he's on camera, getting the shots in on Waller <laughs> and stuff. Ah, oh, Bruce Hart. Okay. Um, before we get to the match itself, we need to talk about some of the backstage details you alluded to. Uh, you know, Bulldog doing all his interviews in one day and then disappearing to go on a coke binge with Jim <laughs> Neidhart because that did happen. Uh, you know, I went over, we went over a lot of these details on Top Rope Nation Classics, but obviously we want to go over them here. Um, you know, Davey, whether or not they had the idea of doing this uh, putting the Intercontinental title on him back then. They probably didn't, but he beats Ric Flair twice in the UK on that tour that we talked yeah. about, which is pretty crazy. Um, he, he was suspended, but um, you know, what maybe gave some consternation about pushing Davies, he gets suspended in, what is it, May? You know why. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, obviously with, uh, you know, steroids running amok. And he, he gets injured. The drug issues, obviously everyone remembers the famous story that Brett tells um it's you people can look up his kayfabe commentaries with sean oliver when brett finds davy finally wants to go over the match and and you know davy's just you know admits that he's just been doing coke all summer long (laughs) and then you know davy shows up for the match and and you know they're they're in the ring and that famous (laughs) that those famous words i'm fucked Yeah, yeah. Well, and, 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 God and, and, was there. To yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because as, as we're going to talk about, this was the Bret Hart hour, this match. Now, these two had a previous match. I believe it was uh, on June 30th or something some, around that time. Vince McMahon did not receive well. That This match is online. Yeah. It was part of the WWF uh, or WWE's DVD unreleased 86 to 95, I guess. But it, it can be found online. Um, and you, that that was on our um, on our list for actually the last show, but it, it was yeah. might have been the last thing. 
What did you think about that match? Was Vince right to receive that as not being very good? Uh, I, I don't know if I would say it wasn't very good, but it, it felt, um, you know, it felt kind of scaled back and didn't have the drama. That, yeah. And, and I think the obvious reason is because the crowd's completely different. You know, it's, it's, it's a different setting, a different environment. Davey's not the baby face in America against Brett. Brett and that's the thing. The dynamic didn't really, I don't think the dynamic worked in the first match when people didn't want Brett to lose. So... You mm-hmm. need to you need to have that dynamic for Davy, you know, some of his shortcomings to kind of you know, kind of be overridden by the fact that you know he's got the the overwhelming groundswell of support urging him to win, and Brett getting to do what he was going to do best in this situation, which was get to play the subtle heel and lead the thing. Uh, you mentioned Bruce Hart uh, being the star of the uh, family promo as well. I would be remiss if I left out this Bobby Heenan line on television. <laughs> Quote, they finally unloaded Diana so Bulldog could marry her. <laughs> that, that was good. All right. So the match oh, itself, Heenan. it is a classic. Four and a half stars is yeah. where I've got it at. Uh, but, you know, you think about this. Davy Boy didn't really mean shit in the States. Uh, the company just, they basically had to go to SummerSlam, or they had to go to Summer, they had to go to the UK to do SummerSlam so they could make some money. Uh, end of the day, Liam, how lucky was Davy Boy Smith to be born British? <laughs> uh, well, not to be too cruel, but judging from the fact that he hasn't done a single um, excellent thing, let's say. I was going to say memorable, but I do remember the match with the Warlord, so I guess that's something. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, you know, in terms of like an angle that was really worth a fuck or anything, since we started doing this analysis from January of 1990 onwards, and there's been nothing really from Davy Boy that would make you think that he should be in this position other than the nationality. Um, yeah, extremely, extremely fortunate. Also, you know, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of people who fall into the category of right place, right time. And Davy in the early 90s really was the definition of that. And it's almost, I want to say a shame or I don't know what, but the fact that he kind of flip-flops between promotions during a time, a period in, in the business's history when the UK was like the place for, the, for, for either company to make money. You know, 92, 93, 94, like every, you know, these companies are struggling to make some cash. And Davy, as a key to like, you know, the one country who, you know, is actually really, really selling out you know, fairly frequently. It, absolutely right place, right time. Um, because even despite the fact that he has his weaknesses, this works. And I know talking about the match itself, obviously, genuine classic. It's funny that the, the Bret Hart thing is in place because when you're looking for it, you can spot it. But at the time, I didn't see anybody saying it and I didn't hear um at the time I, it wasn't really until brett started bringing that up that everyone was like <laughs> you know what now that you actually look for it that is yeah, that is yeah. like a you know brett, now, that, now that you told us yes what a fa- fantastic carry job that was by yeah. you I'm glad that you brought that to our attention <laughs> yeah it's like it's almost like this is, and, and you know and brett's extremely proud of it as well he should be because if that, i mean i don't i don't disbelieve brett so it's like the fact that he managed to pull it off he has every right to be as proud as he is but it's one of those things where it's like you know, he was silently proud about it for years and years and years. He's like, you know what? Fuck this. I just got to tell everybody. That part where I've got him in a chin lock, I'm telling him the whole match. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he's got nothing. He's fooked. Yeah. And as we'll talk about later, the promotion was obviously impressed. So it wasn't just, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was just a guy who was Mark, a Mark for himself. It was like, mm. you know, this isn't Dolph Ziggler, like saying, I'm going to steal the show. And like, no one believes that. This is obviously <laughs> Brett impressed a lot of people. Yeah. 
with this performance. It is, although Davy Boy, it is his crowning achievement of his career. He wins the Intercontinental title. Big picture, this is the Bret Hart show. There's that funny story uh, we talked about on Top Rope Nation a, a little bit of when he like returns to the back and true to four Brett's like thinking he's going to get this hero's welcome and this <laughs> round of applause from the locker room and everybody's already fucking peaced out. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone just like left uh, the bus. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Hawk and the Berserker got a, a, a big start on everybody apparently. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, you know, and that's the WF like the WF locker room. Obviously, you know, they they I guess couldn't be bothered to sit in the back and watch this. They just wanted to get out of the building. But well, that's it. It's just another show for some of these folks. You know, it's not not every match on this show was Brett Bulldog, and not no. every match on this show was was a uh, was a uh, Savage Warrior in terms of effort either. So there's a lot of people who kind of did their part and then pissed off to the local uh, to get some uh, fish and chips, maybe to take in the culture. But yeah, the, the other thing I wanted to say about this match before we we move on is that I remember again. I told you the story about my first viewing of SummerSlam, Brett, one of the things that Brett says when he criticizes uh, Davey's performance in this match is the end, where he's basically like, I don't know if you've ever, you know, if you remember this, but like in his book, he talks about how um, I just wanted Davey to look at me so that we, and, and our eyes meeting is going to generate this emotion that people are going to be heartbroken that, you know, the, the family's torn apart. And then they do the big hug at the end. The fireworks go off. Everything's okay. We can love them all and everything's great. And Brett's like, ah, it didn't work. Davey Boy was just looking at the crowd and didn't give a shit. And then I just walked up and hugged him. <laughs> and it's like, he kind of says, like, almost as if it didn't work. And this is where I have to make the embarrassing revelation that five years old, when I watched this, I cried like a baby. <laughs> oh, wow. I cried like a baby that they reunited because I was, I, it worked on me. It worked on yeah, me. It did work. Um, Let's talk about, you know, Earlier we said first pay-per-view without Hogan. And, you know, Hogan always got to close. It's, it's yeah. not uh, a very, 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 I could say very a lot more times, but I'm not because it would be annoying. <laughs> Different kind of match to close the WF pay-per-view than you got with Hogan. Yeah, um, that's, 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 yeah. How, how does that, this is not your notes, but you're a smart man and I think you could take it somewhere. Um, does that sort of, enhance the legend of this match because there had really you, you think about it there had not been a match like this on wwf pay-per-view before there have been great matches on wwf pay-per-view before obviously you had savage and steamboat at mania three but that's a much tighter affair it's sub 15 minutes um you know the, the savage matches against warrior and flair uh are are, are different than this this is like very much a, a a slower paced wrestling match, yeah. Which is something that the WWF audience was not conditioned uh, to really consume at this point. Now, over the next several years, as Brett and certainly Shawn Michaels would kind of take their respective spots at the top of the card, we did get used to longer matches closing out the show, but. Um, this had to be, and, and I wish I could tell you like how I felt about it at the time, but I don't remember, but it got, it had to be jarring for a long, like a, a long match like this at the end of a WWF pay-per-view because it was yeah. very new. Very new, very novel. I think that there is something to be said for the fact that there is a symbolic, a symbolic something about the first non-Hogan pay-per-view ending with a match that felt like it could have been on an NWA show. 
Yes. In years yes. past. Um, and the fact that the guy they were going to in Brett, although I'm not sure if they knew that at the time. In fact, no, they, they, they didn't. There's they no way the they did. Yeah. They didn't know it. They had enough faith in him to pull it off successfully, which obviously he did. And I think there is, a, you know, Hogan's Hogan's stuff. Never this slow. You know, very active. You know, very crowd interactive. The the not you know, obviously not nearly as long and and you know, stylistically so jarring and i think like you say that that does enhance the because everything about this show ends up being so completely unique the giant stadium during a time where we won't see another show in a stadium this big for a long time mm-hmm. um a match like this ending the show that again we wouldn't have seen these guys guys this size even i mean bulldog's jacked but brett's you know brett's in the main event position and it's like this just feels it feels very different and, and everything about this it's like a surreal experience it's you are watching a wf pay-per-view but it kind of doesn't feel like one yeah yeah it does and um it, as we're going to talk about it's a new era in the wwf mm. moving forward and um brett maybe didn't know it at the time a lot of fans didn't realize it at the time but uh that match uh he was really the big winner although he lost um it, you know, Davey Boy Smith is the Intercontinental mm-hmm. Champion, but uh, not for long. But uh, that is the next podcast, not this one. Uh, Liam, you've been very critical in the past of your <laughs> countryman, Davey Boy Smith. And that brings me to a listener question. Yes, a new segment <laughs> here on the program. A listener question. This comes from my buddy, Mike Johnson, not the PW Insider one, uh, but my buddy from grade school. He wants to know, why do you hate Lord Al so much? <laughs> is this a serious question yes like, i mean i told i told him the answer was probably that he sucks on comments because he's fucking inept in every way yes so I, 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 mean, I, I, I i don't know i think you know this is to, you know tip maybe maybe you know i'm sure mike's gonna listen to this and whatnot but i, I think it's like you know he might look at it, it's like hey come on man you're, it's got you're, more. liam's british lord al's british <laughs> they both love each other yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did they not grow up next to each other? I mean, yeah, what's going on here? What, but, I mean, uh, is there something unique to Lord Al besides his putrid commentary that makes you hate him so much? Because you have been very critical of him in the past. Yeah, so, I, you know, I mean, I'm not the most patriotic person in the world. I'm not, yes. I, 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 I don't lean towards patriotism, generally speaking. But one of the things that, like, is that I do share with a lot of British people is that I hate when Americans... <laughs> or Canadians or any other kind of outside entity makes fun of, or tries to spoof the British accent, right? Like, when I did the one night only review show, the the classic show with you guys at Top Rope Nation, I talked about the Dude Love promo where he speaks with the British accent and it just bombs and like nobody (laughs) reacts at all. And this is like the thing with Lord Al from a young age, it's like, Fucking, this is, you know, Britain's representation, because Bulldog couldn't speak either. And so it's like, this is like England's representation to America via the WWF, is this fucking bumbling twat, who when he, when, you know, even on this show, let's talk about SummerSlam 92, when he's doing the backstage roving reporter with, you're trying to get into the locker rooms of Savage and Warrior, and he goes, you know, I'm just going to barge in unexpectedly. And he just closed the door on him. He's like, wow, that was a stunning act of rudeness. It's like, yeah. God, God damn it. Fuck you, Lord Al. He's piss off. And let somebody who's good do their job. Where's Sean Mooney? 
Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, Al did uh, endear himself, I think, uh, to the United States audience when on commentary on our uh, watch list, there was a, a sub-match uh, that he was doing. I believe it was with Gorilla. Lord Al thought Dwight Eisenhower, the former president's first name was Irwin. It was an IRA. It was a Money Inc. match, and and he's like, why do people? And he was like, just going off on all those stupid rants he does about like, why do people hate the name Irwin? It's like, oh, you know, you, Eisenhower's name was Irwin. He was president. And Grobots was like, what are you talking about? His first <laughs> name is Dwight. It just seems like one of these people who just like goes through life oblivious to what's going on and then just like just shows up everywhere just like asking everybody else to like what to do like he's like <laughs> fuck uh, yeah i just i, I can't I, I will pose this return question to mike why wouldn't i hate lord al <laughs> okay there we go yeah i mean so all right there we go i hope uh Mike, you like that answer? Fuck Al Hayes is the answer, basically. <laughs> All right, we got to get lower on the card. We may have to blow through some of this here, mm. otherwise we could be. Uh, otherwise, uh, this could be like an AEW pay per view. Uh, but uh, lower on the card, uh, Shawn Michaels, uh, as you know, they were building to him being an IC title contender in the start of the summer. So yeah. he doesn't get that match with Brett on pay per view, and he instead gets diverted into an odd heel versus heel feud with Rick Martell. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean. It's a funny enough premise, and considering that again, Sean clearly they had a plan for him. That's gone away with Rick Martel. Was again yeah, the, the Tatonka feud had flared up again, much to our chagrin. That's been tanked. Uh, I did enjoy Rick Martel calling Sherry a truck stop beauty queen uh, in the early <laughs> promos, which was a very yeah. different. Seems like they were going a very different route than what they went down, which was the idea that Sherry kind of had the hots from Martel. And uh, I like the premise, yeah, the amusing stip. Both guys are green in separate promos to not hit each other in the face. Um, and they actually did a bit more for Martel than I, I do remember because they put it on a couple of Coliseum videos where he's got Brett in the Boston Crab and looks like he's going to win the IC title before Sean comes down and fucks it up by starts punching Brett. Again, kind of give them a bit of a reason to have some static. And Martel just feels kind of, he just feels very played out in this current role. But this was like the one thing where it's like, you know, it feels very much like a house show match and a house show idea. And this, you know, again, being the fact that this is a very kind of isolated show, this is one of those things where, yeah, this is great, humorous entertainment, and then this is never going to get referenced again. Yeah, and it doesn't. I mean, this feud is completely yeah, dumb. Sher Sherry goes back with Sean. You know, I, I think in the first post-SummerSlam interview, Gene sort of is like, oh, you kind of seem to have the hots for Rick Martel. I guess that's over with. So they actually did attempt to tie the loose up that. Um, but you mentioned that they had big plans for Sean, mm -hmm. clearly, even though if they he kind of had to get sidetracked here at SummerSlam. He still gets some big matches in this era. Tape for Coliseum video. Obviously, the ladder match with Brett. It doesn't happen at SummerSlam. Instead, it's taped in Coliseum uh, home video. And I enjoy that. It, it's it's sort of refreshing to see the way earlier ladder matches have worked. I know that if, like, Dave Meltzer is here, like, him and I would probably get into, like, a 90-minute argument about that. But um, <laughs> I, I thought it was kind of refreshing how, how that match was worked when I watched it back uh year or so ago uh mm. sean and flair team up to take on brett and randy savage imagine yeah. I, I guess i like more than other people i was reading on the pwo forum they were all kind of slagging it but uh oh, really yeah I, I enjoy that match yeah uh, i like that match too uh sean beats carrie uh Von yeah Eric, 
who was on his way out the door. More on that in a bit. Uh, I liked that match, how, like, Sean was like started. He was like doing his usual thing, posing in the mirror, and then Carrie gets behind him. And like <laughs> Carrie kind of looked like he was sauced, to be honest. But he takes his robe off and he starts posing. Um, so like Sean is still doing important things. And post SummerSlam, um, there is an interview where he clearly says he said, you know, he still got his eyes on the IC title, even though it's a new champion, Bulldog, and not Brett. Yeah, one last thing <laughs> on Lord Al Hayes, by the way. Oh. Okay. You reminded me, the Sean Kerry Von Erich match, mm-hmm. where Al Hayes is on commentary and calls Kerry Von Erich, and I quote, the Texas Tornado. Oh, yeah, that's... It, it, and it, he it, actually it, gets corrected, it's Tornado, Al. You don't need to act like you're British, the word is tornado in every country, you fucking yeah. idiot. <laughs> oh, Al Hayes. And, did not, I don't think it's going to be the last we hear, but I think we I have more notes on his shit commentary later. <laughs> but, but, yeah, uh, so, so, so you're right, yeah, so Sean... Sean it's very clear that they aren't really truly planning to change this trajectory. They've stuck to this, which again, commendable in the modern day, six months of planning and sticking to a plan seems extremely novel in the WWE, but uh, here they stuck to their guns. They knew they were positioning him and they, they treat him accordingly. Speaking of shitty commentary, Liam, we now turn to the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine. And this is going to be a real treat for the listeners of Squared Circle Gazette, because we have now reached the time period where my WWF magazine subscription began. Oh, tremendous. So, so while you know the WWF's popularity in the States uh, may have been going downhill, apparently I was uh, obviously still really into it because I have all of the WWF magazines from the second half of 92, all of them from 93, all of them from 94, and the first couple from 95. I'll take a picture and put it on Facebook page of some of this stuff because, I don't know, I think it's it's just a cool bit of nostalgia. Even there's some beauts. Yeah, there's yeah, some beauts in there. Even though, even though the writing is complete rubbish in these things. I mean, <laughs> I, I, instead of, typically when you read, the goal is to learn. I think you actually become dumber when you read this magazine and that brings me to this article a wwf magazine special inquiry does sean michaels really hate women liam and i'm going to read this to you uh sensational sherry's sexy boy sean michaels projects the image of the absolute lady killer lothario don juan and casanova wrapped up into one suave package he's smug cool conceited and undeniably handsome sean or sherry dotes on his every move. Countless other women wish they could. And when Sherry is not at Sean's sides, uh, is not at Sean's side, not often, he takes them up on it. Okay. It's all, this is, some of this stuff's unbelievable. Okay. I was attracted physically to Shawn Michaels, says Pinky Skroka. Quote, I tried to be nice to him. So they go, what, what this article does, it goes back and, and interviews people that went to school with Shawn Michaels. This is <laughs> absolutely incredible. So Pinky Skropka uh, says, I tried to be nice to him. He asked me for a date. I told him I'd meet him at the park. I met him all right. He strolled by with another girl. You know what he <laughs> said to me? He said, honey, somebody just cut into... Cut into line ahead of you. If you want, you can see me later. After that, I had nothing to do with him. But he had plenty plenty of other girls crawling all over him. Some were nice girls. He broke their hearts. But most of them were a lot like Sherry. Uh, Sorry, Pinky, but it's probably better better to be pissed off than pissed on, I suppose. I guess so. Shawn Michaels. 
I guess so. God, can you imagine imagine if they'd interviewed Sonny uh, for yeah. this article. Anyway, I continue. Sean's adolescent behavior, says Dr. Lothar Bacon Epstein, a oh, noted... Come on. Come on. Hold on. Hold on. Are you sitting down? Are you sitting down? I am. A noted British psychologist <laughs> typifies a young male who feels rejected by the opposite sex, knows why, but won't admit to himself. Quote, this is according to Dr. Lothar Bacon Epstein. Sean was a bitter, sneaky kid. Instead of trying to face his problems and change his behavior, he decided to change his body. And the sudden spurt and growth he experienced encouraged him. I may be incorrect, but I believe Michael still felt insecure despite his new good looks and muscles. He compensated by making women scrape before him. And I'll wager he took it out on the boys, too. Oh, well, the Fraser Crane of the British society. Uh, le- le- leveling that out there for the world to hear. That's that's actually <laughs> who wrote this fucking tripe. Doctor Lothar. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't see a Keith Elliott Greenberg here. It's just a, I think no one put their name to this article. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. And quite frankly, would you? Yeah. <laughs> it just says a WWF magazine special inquiry. Let me see here. Uh, I love at the beginning, Shawn Michaels. Does he despise damsels in the table of contents? <laughs> On the cover, Shawn Michaels. WWF peeks into the depth of his murky mind. Okay. Uh, wow. That's Shawn Michaels, uh, and there are better things ahead for him. Uh, let's change courses. Our newcomers from last time. We, we always talk about the coming and going section. and the, mm-hmm. there, weren't, there weren't many, but there were two of note, I guess, n- of note just because they were being pushed on television, not because they were any good. Uh, Nails and Crush, they win a couple of glorified squashes at SummerSlam over Virgil and the Repo Man, respectively. Uh, unimpressive, to say the least. Yeah, none of the four people you just mentioned there did anything good during this period. Crush, after these awful vignettes. Works he kind of disappears. Yeah, he just kind of, it's almost like they kind of realize, like, they, okay, we're not after the best of starts. Maybe we can just kind of have a bit of a break and try and start fresh or something. Yeah, because, I mean, there weren't a lot of squash matches. Again, we're sort of beholden to um, the, like, kind of the, the, the video playlist that we're using. We're not mm-hmm. watching every TV, but, like, it just didn't seem like he was a big part of the fabric uh, after those initial vignettes. Um, I will add this. Um, with nails, there was a pretty good promo that he did post SummerSlam, and I liked how he retired Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah, yeah, that was. I I feel like they they clearly were going to pick up the focus on nails. This felt like him and Virgil very very much just felt like something to do to get nails away on pay view to kind of help legitimize them a little bit more. But they they did ramp it up afterwards. Yeah, and by the way, that Nails match, or that Virgil match, uh, and the payoff that Nails received uh, becomes important later on. We'll talk about that <laughs> in the next episode. Yes, but, we will. Uh, yeah, so Nails wrestles Virgil at SummerSlam, despite that they bring Bossman back on yeah. TV after beatdown. Your thoughts on that? I was surprised that he returned before SummerSlam. It just feels, uh, you know, why, why? Why is he needed right now? I don't know, but... Um, you know, he returns before SummerSlam, does a good, good, really good promo. Um, 
yeah, yeah, the, the critic in me is like, God damn, take your cap off, boss man, because the shadow's like blocking his eyes the whole way through. And he's got so much energy in his voice. And he's just like, he's just you know, ranting about nails, saying that when I get you in that ring, I'm kicking your ass. Which, you know, in 1992, you know. You didn't hear ass a lot, no. You, you didn't hear that. So like, and it, and it feels like there's some genuine momentum with boss man at this period of time when he wrestles Skinner and Skinner gets beaten as he, as he does like pretty much like a drum actually this period of time. Um, <laughs> the crowd is really, really into boss man. And it feels like, okay, this angle worked. We're in the good direction here. And yeah, like the, you know, they're, they're moving in a good direction with this story. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, yeah. Retired slaughter post summer mm-hmm. slam nails. Um, and uh, they write him off. Slaughter gets a new role in the fall. We'll talk about that again. Uh, next time, uh, uh, also in the WWF magazine, uh, the big boss man, uh, they, there is a section on him visiting children in a hospital, actual kids. And he let them know he empathized with their lot in life because he, too, had been in a hospital uh, due to being laid up by nails. <laughs> imagine, being right. a kid, imagine being a kid in a hospital. Uh, I'm right there with you, buddy. Nails got me. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, you think you got it bad. Take a look at these pictures and she shows them. It's like, okay, you know, Drift Magazine. Yeah, Wade Keller, by the way, in The Torch said that them showing, because I thought it was great, actually. Like, it was probably better than the actual angle itself, the beatdown. Like, the the pictures of the boss man where he's all bruised. Wade Keller called it inappropriate coming on the heels of Rodney King. Oh, for the love of God! Come on. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, and, and, and we went through this last time. I wrote a a a scintillating paper in the eighth grade about that verdict and, and that disgrace of U.S. jurisprudence. But I thought that was a little much for Wade. Come um, on, that's and, a reach. Yeah, and they were really selling it, by the way, as like the biggest beatdown in WWF history. Yeah, they were. So they, that... they, they were. They were really trying. And, and yeah, I like the phone calls, like yeah, repeated and perfect. Where they're like, yeah, you know, oh, I bet you're not coming back and stuff, and and showing the videos. But yeah, Bossman returned. He seemed really over in that first promo, and it, it's, it worked. It, it's kind of weird that they just didn't do the match um, at SummerSlam. I guess they just wanted to drag it out. Um, because obviously they do it at Survivor Series. Mm-hmm. Some uh, of those things they, they they probably feel like they didn't need to give away. But yes. having said that, again, okay, so this is what they're going to stick with. We mentioned. I, I know. You, I want you to hit on this. Bulldogs. <laughs> Bulldogs' previous feud before they hard turn to Brett because we mentioned Repo Man there, and I want to hear you talk about this promo. Okay, so you, we, you talked about how none of the four people we started at the beginning of this discussion, Nails, Crush, Virgil, Repo, did anything impressive during this period. Well, that goes doubly true for the Repo Man. Early on in our – so they're still doing – this is before they divert to Bretton Davey. Repo Man, the, the feud with Bulldog is running on fumes, and there is this promo he does on the podium machine that is maybe the single worst fucking promo I've ever watched in my life. <laughs> I posted it in the Top Rope Nation Facebook group and said, this is the worst problem I've ever seen. <laughs> I will post it in the Squared Circle Gazette Facebook because people have to It's just like he's just trying to sell like how he's like Davey's like an actual dog <laughs> and he's like in control. Of him. It's like Gene Okerlund looks absolutely disgusted. Like he wants to just drop the mic and quit the promotion <laughs> that, that he came to in 1984. 
the crowd is so silent too when he's going yeah. through all these stupid dog analogies and he's gonna you know he's got him on the short leash ah oh, it's fucking putrid stuff yeah. Uh, by the way, <laughs> there were you know we're complaining about the Repo Man here. Uh, apparently, backstage there were some complaints uh, that Repo was working too stiff in September. Uh, a jobber match apparently, where he, he, it was complained he was working too stiff. And Bret Hart in a match. Uh, I don't know if it was taped for TV or not, but Bret reportedly told Repo to quote knock it off. For mm. the PW Torch, so I don't know. Repo Man, desperate to get over after that shameful promo, just started like you know channeling his inner freaking Leon White. Or yeah. what? Uh, you know, speaking of not impressive, you mentioned Skinner earlier. A lot of jobs yes. he did on TV during this period. Not complaining, uh, but on our TV watch list alone. Not only did he lose to the boss man, he lost to The Undertaker, he lost to Tatanka, and he lost to Bret Hart. When you're doing that many jobs on TV in WWF around this period, that means you know that you're probably not long for this company. Yeah, it's time to start typing your resume and trying to get in good with Bill Watts because yep. uh, it's, it's, it's not looking good for the alligator man. But he hangs around for kind of a, a while longer. I was, I was yeah, shocked. Yeah, I don't know how. Um, okay, speaking of a guy who hung around for a while longer, uh, The Undertaker. <laughs> mm. uh, he, yeah, he had a nice career. Uh, we previously uh, saw him averting the Berserker's sword uh, in a strange feud. You talked about it earlier, Liam. They kind of just go away from that. Uh, no more Undertaker-Berserker. Plans change. And it's Undertaker-Kamala at SummerSlam. Uh, again, announced cold. And it's, to me... You know, this is thinking big picture. This is just a bad feud, I think. And it's a, more than anything, once they do the bit where Kamala's scared of The Undertaker, it's just a horrible use of Kamala. You think about how Kamala drew big money opposite Hogan in 86. I'm not saying he was capable of doing that in 92, but this was a big money player once upon a time. He was, uh, you know, considered really an attraction in the territory days to like, Basically, kill his gimmick by him being scared was just a horrible portrayal. Yeah, that's it's it's the entire the entire reason you bring Kamala in is to make him a fearsome heel. And when he's shitting his loincloth in, and he's, he hasn't even he hasn't even back a month. We've barely we've barely gotten him any TV time, and we've already seen him cowering in fear or just puzzled by the Undertaker when they do their kind of ships passing in the night confrontation in between squash matches. Um, which you I know. thought was, I like how they did that. Not to cut you off. It, it, you know, when they do that stuff now, whether it's AEW or WWE, it's like so phony. Yeah. When they do it. But like, they did this thing where like Kamala after a match, he was like trying to go out to the crowd. And yeah. Harvey and Kim Chi were trying to call him back. So basically it was realistic that the next person would come out because he was taking too long. Kamala was going the wrong way. It felt... The, the confrontation between Undertaker and Kamala you know, felt way more organic than what you see on television nowadays. Yeah, I agree completely. I agree completely. I, the execution of it wasn't bad. The follow-up promos I did not care for when it's basically uh, Paul Berry and Undertaker talking about burials and it's going to be a massive burial and then Taker ends up, you know, Taker's going to end up in a stew at the hands of Kamala, apparently. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's weak. It's weak. They actually did a follow-up angle to take a Berserker, which again just gets dropped cold um, in July, where Fuji and Berserker throw salt in the eyes of Paul Bearer and Undertaker, which is, 
yeah, pretty lame and ineffective. They don't even really you know, take it doesn't even really sell it that much. <laughs> it's it's came up again, you know, can't be asked with this anymore. I'm not doing this till SummerSlam. We got Kamala, let's go for it. Whatever. Yeah. But this is like the beginning of that horrible period of takers working with these deadbeat heels that have to cower to him. Yes, yes. It, it's very similar, like for basically like, what, two, three years? Yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> um Undertaker Berserker, they actually do have, I don't know if it, you would call it a blow-off match, but they did something taped for Coliseum video for the three people who care. And I'll always remember this match afterwards, Undertaker Tombstones Fuji. <laughs> and you could have driven a semi-truck <laughs> under Fuji's head, it, the space between his head and the uh, and the ring. I guess Taker was still shaken by, uh, you know, nearly paralyzing Hulk Hogan. Oh, yes. Yeah. Survivor Series 91. I don't know if he was being extra careful or not. We joked about, um, you know, Jake Roberts, the tombstone uh, on the floor being the same thing at WrestleMania. So, no, I don't know Fuji, that he just, you know, Fuji, the rib king, there's no way he wants to get on the bad side of Fuji. Well, yeah, I mean, he, well, no. <laughs> the guy who really does know where the bodies are buried. Yeah, I mean, he knows where the bodies are. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Kamala's stew. He'll tell you who's in a stew, <laughs> Mr. Fuji. He'll tell you, you know, where briefcases go in the Allegheny, uh, Pennsylvania <laughs> area, too. Uh, I, I thought something was funny here. Uh, the Undertaker squash jobber Bruce Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I uh, missed I, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I was trying to look back in the torch to see if Bruce wrote any particularly scathing column about WWE, I'm sure it had something to do with Titan Gate or whatever. But uh, yeah, of course, Bruce Mitchell uh, no longer uh, with the torch after um, you know he, he kind of made some <laughs> had some poor ideas. <laughs> yeah, some poor ideas. Uh, you, you know, for uh, art for, for articles and and so just poor choice of journalism. I I, always, I I was always scratching my head when Bruce referred to the 2020 Royal Rumble as racist. <laughs> Why? Because he, he, I'll never. I listened to the torch review on this rumble, and you know that that's a really good rumble, especially by like in modern. modern standards, WWE. Yeah, yeah. I remember it. So that's but, but, but I, I guess you know, like he was like you know Todd Martin and Wade were just like talking about how awesome Brock's performance, yeah, in it was, and. Bruce Mitchell just breaks. He's like, yeah, you know, they just had the Aryan Superman throwing out all the black guys. Jesus Christ, come on, and Todd, man. And Todd Martin's like, you know, I, I, I didn't see it that way. Yeah. <laughs> no one yeah. did. Yeah, no, yes. Yeah, I'll never forget. Aryan WWE, Superman. I'll never forget. WWE sent on a tweet. This, the, there, there will not be more than five people that laugh at this. Okay, maybe they will, but maybe more. But WWE sent on a tweet. It's like, describe the t- t- 2020 Royal Rumble in one word. And, and Robert retweeted it and put racist. <laughs> Oh, uh, that was good. Um, That's not bad. That's good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Berserker, we, we met. So he's done with The Undertaker. What does he do? Well, he had a shoulder issue as well. I don't know if that caused the change in plans, but it caused the Berserker to miss some time before SummerSlam. But he still gets on the on the card. Uh, a match taped for the show that did not actually air on the U.S. pay-per-view. Uh, he loses to Tatanka, who is still undefeated. Yeah, Tatanka, who... Kind of with the Martel thing, drop cold. He's kind of a man without a country as well. This feels very uh, kind of strung together. Tatanka very wooden in his revenge promos on Martel at the start of uh, July when that thing's still cooking, um, if you can call it that. Um, gets dropped, and I can't wait for round three because this is <laughs> this does get picked up again for Survivor Series for some yeah. reason. Yeah, so Tatanka and uh, Berserker, yeah, they work at 
uh, SummerSlam. But, it, you know, it, it was shown on primetime wrestling here in the States. Uh, it was shown live uh, for the UK crowd, but I guess there was some worry that they were running late on pay-per-view time. So they cut it out of the U.S. pay-per-view airing. You know, you talk about, you know, Tatanka still talking about Martell. It felt like a lot of guys, at least initially, when this SummerSlam card started coming together, had split focus. Yeah. Because they had all the because they had all these feuds that were cut, you know, just kind of dropped cold and they went so uh Mean Jean at one point called Tatanka a quote native North American mm. before an interview. Uh, you know, Tatanka beat the Mountie by a DQ. Uh no no more slaughter feud for the Mountie. Thank God. Uh, uh Berserker, one last note on him. We again turn oh, the pages. I don't get your hopes up too much because I reread this and I don't think it's that funny. It's just the usual xenophobia from WWF magazine as we go to uh we stick in the October 92 issue. Uh quote, manager Mr. Fuji was recently spotted at a Chinese restaurant in New York no. City. <laughs> oh boy. Witnesses say that he ordered great quantities of food from the restaurant's takeout menu. When Lowdown interviewed the restaurant owners, sure they did, who requested that they and their establishment remain anonymous, uh -huh. they said Fuji did make a big purchase. Mr. Fuji ordered 15 whole Peking ducks, dozens, because that's what you get from a Chinese takeout place, uh, dozens of egg rolls and four pounds of sweet and sour pork, said the head chef. He could have fed the whole Chinese army. Keep in mind, Mr. Fuji is being portrayed as Japanese, but uh, don't let that get away with a good story. Uh, Fuji, our sources discovered, says Lowdown, didn't feed the Chinese military. His berserker, say sources, devoured the food. Many people want to know why Fuji is trying to beef up his already massive superstar. Quote, Master Fuji not trying to beef up berserker, he says. Berserker hate Chinese food that make him want to punish opponents more. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Again, I, I, I can't help but be appalled at the Chinese references. It just feels unnecessary, really. Yeah. You know? Couldn't have been uh, a massive order of sushi or something. Yeah, I know. Well, even that, I mean, what are we doing there? So, uh, speaking of unnecessary, there were some dark matches at SummerSlam 92. Mm. Uh, Papa Shango uh, and Tito Santana, and then uh, Jim Duggan and the Bushwhackers against Nasty Boys in the Mountie. I, I, I did watch closely to see if Duggan would get a USA chant try if he tried to get that started in the UK, much like he tried getting in Canada for <laughs> WrestleMania 6. He did pound his foot rhythmically, but didn't outwardly ask the crowd to chant USA. Um, but anyway, in, in regards to these dark matches, Dave thinks, uh, Meltzer, of course, that it would have been better just to advertise eight matches. That way you could have put the extras on TV if things were running short instead of what they did, which was basically just keep them dark because things were running long. Yeah, so it's it's funny because for when I started, you know, the the, the world of uh, newsletters and uh, reporting and such, I didn't even realize these were dark matches because my exposure to this show, obviously watching it live, was seeing from um, as I mentioned, Warrior Savage onwards, and then getting the video, and the video has everything on it. So mm -hmm. I I always assumed that this was the entire show. I didn't realize that these were actually. You know, they didn't see the light of day and people in America didn't see them for years. Granted, didn't miss much, but, you know, um, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm sure people aren't weeping for missing a Bushwhackers Jim Duggan team. Yeah, uh, you know, they actually kind of set them up together as a team. Duggan and the Bushwhackers yeah. win that six man. They kind of set them up together as a, dare I say, a trios combination <laughs> uh, because there was a Bushwhackers Nasty Boys match uh, that sees Jim Duggan making the save. Uh 
They then have a six-man tag against Repo Man and the Beverly's pre-SummerSlam, which they lose Duggan and the Whackers. <laughs> uh, right. No Sergeant Slaughter anymore. Again, uh, for, he's been written off. Uh, during that six-man against Repo and the Beverly's, there is a very bizarre moment where Jim Duggan tells the cameraman to, quote, get off my butt. <laughs> it just yells at him. And, like, I don't think the camera wanted to catch that. But uh, 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 apparently the cameras also didn't want to catch a Jim Duggan Iron Mike <laughs> Sharp match, by the way, um, which the torch reported was so bad that cameras were told to stop filming. This was in Worcester, Mass. It did not make TV. Think of the matches that have been made the air, some of the, the, the shitty squash matches that have made air. Because there are some jobbers who can't even take a bump. Yeah. Yeah, you see them sometimes. <laughs> you talked about Nails' first match um, on the last podcast. And for, the, for, the, for it to not even make air, like they, they even just finish it for the live crowd, just cut the tape. Yeah. So Duggan clearly sliding down the card. Uh, the Bushwhackers, uh, they're sliding down the card yeah. as well. They lost a lot, too. They, them and Skinner. I, I feel like I watched uh, a lot of jobs uh, by the Bushwhackers and Skinner uh, on my TV yeah, viewing uh, for this show. Um, speaking of sliding down the card, how about Papa Shango? Talk about oh. the mighty... The mighty have fallen here, Liam. This is a guy who's like in the number two feud in the promotion with the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, now he's just doing a dark match with El Matador, which he does win. Uh, I, I will note, Warrior and Shango shockingly drew 12,500 to a house in the WWF's return to the Meadowlands on July 11th. But let it be known, uh, that was the WWF's first show there in nearly 18 months because WCW got dates. WWF, uh, always the kids who, you know, cry when somebody takes their ball. Once WCW got dates in the metal, we're not going to run there anymore. And, <laughs> and then somehow WCW stopped running there because they did no business. WWF comes back. And and with Warrior and Shango on top, they do 12,500. So that's a bit of good news stateside. Bit of good news, but it is worth mentioning that it is an anomaly. In terms yes. of a good gate, it's not it's not an indicator of anything because there are other indicators that are in the other direction. So, um, Shang, it's a weird one with Shango because again, he gets so much TV focus for that period of three months, and then he just kind of like falls off the grid and just starts again. He's just all of a sudden he's just beating jobbers again, like he's just kind of part of the furniture. And then he shoots a couple of angles with Brett before SummerSlam, which feels really out of place given the timing of everything that's been going on with him previously, and even obviously with Brett going to SummerSlam. And the promos early in July that are continuing Warrior and Shango, are, yeah, they're, they're as awful on both sides as you would expect, but suddenly it's gone. And Shango, who they're pushing as the new most fearsome mystical presence in the WWF, is like just a guy in record time. Like all of a sudden, because Brett's not seen as a top guy. He's seen, he, he's, yeah, he's a star, he's the fourth biggest star in the company for sure at this point on the babyface side. But Shango just like all of a sudden just showing up is kind of like an also around that Brett isn't paying full attention to. <laughs> yeah. Really doesn't help. No. Um, you know, and Santana and Shango, we mentioned the dark match. Uh, it wasn't, they were, Shango was supposed to work someone else in a dark match. We'll get to that in a little bit uh, at SummerSlam. It wasn't supposed to be Santana because Shango, apparently somebody watched this match Shango and Santana had on primetime wrestling in July, which was just interminable. I thought that this match would never end. It was one of the worst <laughs> matches in the history of primetime wrestling. Poor Tito, at least, got to have a good match with Ric Flair on the SummerSlam Spectacular. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned Brett and this 
kind of weird forgotten Shango feud, which gets a lot of play in the WF magazine. So it was clearly a direction because WF yeah. magazine, well, well, we make fun of it and, and the writing, it clearly was an arm of the promotion and letting you know what was big on the horizon. Yeah. And, and there were two big, I, I was leafing through the rest of 92. There were two big features on Bret Hart and Papa Shango, this feud, which really never gets off the ground. You mentioned there's kind of an angle where Shango's beating up a jobber and Bret comes to the jobbers um, defense. Um, and then, you know, after SummerSlam, you know, Brett, he's lost the Intercontinental title. They're trying to play up that he was cursed by Papa Shango. <laughs> and, and this is what I was talking about, whether he, you can always tell whether Brett likes an angle or not, because he totally no shit sells this idea of that he was cursed by Papa Shango, basically just <laughs> shitting on the angle. And it should be noted, Brett was wearing a lovely Pearl Jam t-shirt. Good was, man, Brett hot. Yeah, yeah, so that was on primetime wrestling. Um, the tag division. <laughs> the bane in, of the company in Worcester, Mass, on July twentieth. We had a, we had a title change. Natural Disasters beat Money Inc. Get they get a big pop uh, for winning the belts, but uh, according to the Observer, the crowd was dead when they did another squash later in the night. Weird that this happened at a TV taping, but they didn't air it in syndication. Yeah, this isn't. It's not the first time they've. I mean, they, I, I call the journey of the tag titles in '92 a roller coaster, except it would indicate some high points. Now, have, you know, when, <laughs> when, when the disasters win, it does get a good reaction. It does get over, but it's another non-televised change to a team that needs all the momentum they could get and probably could do with the momentum that airing their big moment would bring. And they just they don't. All of a sudden, it's just again, it's the it's Mean Gene showing a picture of. Quake and Typhoon holding the belts with those big smiles on their faces. It was so weird to watch them both smile. It seems so fake. It's kind of yeah. like now when you feel they send poor Raquel Rodriguez out there at gunpoint. Smile! You know, <laughs> like um, th this that match, the tag title change uh, in Worcester, does end up airing on a Coliseum home video, but well after the disasters are done as a team. And as a matter of fact, memory serves me correct, Jim Ross and Bobby Heenan do the commentary. And I think this is one of those videos where it's been alleged that they were hammered <laughs> yeah yeah have you ever heard that like i think jim ross admitted this on his podcast that him and bobby were pretty sauced when they did the voiceover <laughs> work for some of those coliseum videos and you can tell that the disasters are done as a team at that point because they're kind of shitting on typhoon the whole yeah, time good. like but like it's almost like the shock master bit had happened or something like that's how well after that like that like made tape it, they're very odd a few other tag division notes here uh, Gorilla Monsoon during a Money Inc. versus Hacksaw Duggan Slaughter match. This was earlier uh, in our, our viewing before Slaughter's phased out. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon questions the need to pay taxes. <laughs> it was it was swiftly corrected about that, and I think he kind of realized <laughs> that he shouldn't have said that because he started like immediately doing what he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, there, there was one smart fan in the audience during a Money Inc. High Energy match. Uh, they held up a sign: "IRS is really stupid." I agree. Oh, good stuff. Uh, shot, man, a lot of Money Inc. matches made tape, uh, and I, incredibly, it was the Miracle Jobber connection, as they were uh, known, <laughs> funnily on the internet of Tito Santana and Virgil, that probably pulled the best Money Inc. match I've ever seen. Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny because... That you know, can't be true. What about the cage match with the stylist? That's really good. Okay, well, that hadn't happened yet. Oh, uh, true. All right, well, I mean, yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if, you, if you just fast forward through this. It was okay. And, you know, I'm thinking about it. 
that would have been like a better feud. Like I'm thinking, especially if they used our, our our superior idea of DiBiase and Martel. Oh yeah, that could have worked. DiBiase Martel versus Santana and Virgil. Okay, we're not packing them in, you know, but. <laughs> I think that would have been a better tag title feud than Money, Inc. against the Natural Disasters. Oh, uh, for sure it would have. I, I mentioned the Bushwhackers doing a lot of jobs during this time, so uh, Bobby Heenan was able to get some uh, good quips in, uh, calling them, quote, two guys with an IQ of a doorknob. And incredibly, there is a, a squash <laughs> match where Vince McMahon, four years into the Bushwhackers run, is still confused over which one is Luke, which one is Butch. Heenan replies, Luke has the missing teeth, Butch is the one with the missing brain. <laughs> um, I've seen Butch Sal. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, a, a much uh, a, a sadder, uh, not funny, I guess, uh, uh, moment that I got from the WWF Tag Vision this, around this time. This was in the torch. Uh, Owen Hart, I guess, desperate to draw heat for high energy. <laughs> That's it. I'm sorry. It's not funny to me, the desperation of it's hilarious. So Owen Hart, this was reported in the torch. High Energy's working the Nasty Boys, apparently grabbed the microphone and said, you're not the Nasty Boys, you're, quote, the Fag Boys. <laughs> and the crowd, so, started, so uncreative. the crowd started chanting it, and no. I guess it had more heat than the actual match. I mean, 1992, everybody. Oh, my God. It was a different time, uh, not the last time, sadly, we're going to. Have to report somebody using the FAG word there. But oh, yeah. come on, you know better than that. <laughs> um, so at SummerSlam, the disasters successfully defend their newly won titles against the Beverly Brothers, yeah. and Buddy Inc. loses to LOD. Yeah. Uh, Keenan has the famous line, he's standing on his tongue uh, when <laughs> I Animal stands on Iris's tie. That will never not be funny. Uh, later on, we're going to discuss the tenuous state of this tag division uh, and why the title change may have taken place from. Money Inc. to the Natural Disasters. There is talk of Ted DiBiase and IRS getting broken up in the newsletters hmm. after they lose the belts. And rumors of DiBiase jumping to WCW, possibly. Yeah, that's kind of out of nowhere. I don't know if it's people kind of reaching for the Watts connection, but maybe there was something to it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of nothing to it, Roddy Piper's random SummerSlam appearance. Remember, he plays the bagged pipes. What is that like yes. before the main event? Uh, that was so he could get his actors guard, actors guild card in the UK. It does not indicate any kind of return is forthcoming. So that is that. Yeah. Um, okay. SummerSlam '92. William. Yes. Let's put a bow on it. There are two sides to this story. So we have firmly established that uh, it was gobbled up by your country, record-setting attendance. But the bad news is, as Dave Meltzer guessed, the show did do the lowest buy rate in history, which seems to be a reoccurring theme in 1992. Uh, yeah. What an incredible dichotomy that is. It is, you know, one day I just thought of it when, you know, explaining SummerSlam 92 and framing it. It's just fascinating that a show could set the company's all-time attendance record, and at the same time do a record low on pay-per-view. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot to touch on. You know, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that, I mean, as we said before, the lack of Hogan is all is is, is, is devastating. The, the, the promotion in general, the TV was dire for months after WrestleMania, and that the, the houses and the ratings have all tanked. There's less audience there to pull from to draw a buy rate because of the, the absolute downturn in company interest. And, 
you know, I think, you know, for the second time since you started this series, we're talking about a babyface match for the belt with the warrior that there's a disappointing or bad, flat out bad, in this case, pay-per-view number. Mm-hmm. You Hogan, know, the, of course, being the first. Hogan being the first, yeah. So they, you know, th- things aren't going well for the company. They know that they need to spice things up. They just throw some shit together for SummerSlam. Two babyface matches headliners, as we said, one of which is Bulldog, which doesn't mean anything. So it's Warrior and Savage, the storyline and the novelty of the show that's put in the position to draw. And the novelty doesn't sell. The babyface match wasn't enticing enough. And like we said, no Hogan. And the company is really starting to see how much the idea of the WWF, you know, coming to town really means when it comes to making cold, hard cash. It needs to be about the stars. You know, it wasn't so much the case in our, like I said, in our country, the fact that it was the WWF and a legitimate show was the big deal as much as any individual coming over um, in the States. That's not the case where you are, you know, this isn't the first time for you guys. It's not your first rodeo. So uh, you need something more. And yeah, th- th- this was the kind of the, the unfortunate for the WWF, real sign of the times. Yeah, uh, obviously the brand, as we hate to use the, that word, that those two words together, uh, was a big draw for you guys because it was something that you could consume, not for the first time in person, but like uh, this was the, as you so eloquently put it, it was the first major show you could mm-hmm. consume in person. You know, being in Wembley Stadium, such a big deal. But, you know, here in America, it's just another pay-per-view. And yeah. it, it's a pay-per-view that's coming at a time when, when business is that it's all-time idea. And I thought you made a great point there with, you know, Warrior involved in a babyface match. This isn't the first time that it happened and not the first time that the number was disappointing. And with the, that's not just us saying it. You know, we talked about this in, you know, internally. And it's not just Meltzer that said this. Like, fucking Bruce Pritchard even admitted it on his podcast. Yeah. That internally the belief was babyface versus babyface is what hurt Mania 6. That people didn't like that idea. So it is very strange then to see them go with two babyface versus babyface matches here. And again, I go back to selling the audience on the idea of one of those babyfaces turning heel. I understand, you know, it's it, obviously the company's been killed by scandal too. It it, it is first pay per view without Hogan is a very big deal. It is not a shock to me at all that this was the uh, lowest buy rate in WWF history. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the top match is what draws, essentially. It always mm-hmm. is. But when you, if you just step back from that, and I ask you right now, Kyle, what's the third biggest match on SummerSlam? It's probably Undertaker Kamala. Fucking Kamala, who's been around for a month. <laughs> and like, I mean, it speaks to how absolutely threadbare the heel side is that when they needed a reshuffle, they had nobody ready for the top baby faces at all. They didn't even have anybody in the vicinity of ready. The Undertaker is the number three babyface in the company. He's ahead of Brett at this point. And all they have is someone they've literally just brought in off the shelf. And they've barely even done anything with him before they put him in the position to work with Taker. That's how, you know, and again, I think it's, 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 it's a sign. They knew they needed to change, but they had nothing to change to that wasn't this. And I think that's, you know, this, this is what you get. Year over year drops in SummerSlam. I did a light bulb mm. when I had to look this up. Check this out. 89, they did 625,000. That was a massive. Nice. Uh, 90, they did 507,000. Okay, that's a drop for the previous year, but they were very happy about that because it was right on par with WrestleMania. Yep. 91 drops to 405,000. So we're basically dropping 100,000 every year. And then 92, uh, they do 
280,000. So that's, that's the biggest drop. So yeah, things are dropping uh, a lot. Um, you know, it, it's funny that like Dave thinks the, he, he says the glory days of, uh, using pay-per-view to print money or over. I just think it was a cold product. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't agree that like, cause I mean, it's not like boxing wasn't doing good numbers on pay-per-view. Precisely. Precisely. It's, it's not that pay-per-view is just like, Oh, like remember like Dave thought like in the eighties, like at one point, like WWF did these like astronomical numbers. It's like, Oh wow. Only so many people have access to pay-per-view. Once everyone gets access to pay-per-view, it's going to be like, millions of people will be buying all these shows. It's like, no, the people who want to order WWF on pay-per-view are the people who are getting the pay-per-view capabilities right off the rip. They will Make find a way. They will find yeah. a way. And that's it. And and, and in this case, I agree that, that the premise that, you know, pay-per-view, um, yeah, again, I, I, I need to see the full article in context, but I do think that there is something to the idea that if they're saying that pay-per-view is not a license, no, wrestling pay-per-view is not a license to print yeah. money because these companies are finding it harder and harder to convince people to do that i mean wcw would go on later this year and do one of their better buy rates in forever with sting and jake yes that's a good so point because it was not, something people wanted to see. yes that's a great point that's a great point so it's not like people if the right thing was in play it's not like they won't bite it's just that this was not the right thing the SummerSlam you thought you'd never see mm. quote unquote i guess people just didn't want to see it <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you didn't really want to see. I guess. Yeah, that's not, I guess that's what it was, right? Like, well, I, I just wonder if the 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 plans change was just too jarring in the states. It's like you know, if you're watching, it, like all of a sudden the programs that were being built up, okay, they were shitty, but it it just was very different to be watching WWF and just see them just junk plans and just go with all new programs cold. And and I, I think you add all this up, and again, not a surprise that they did um, a bad number on pay-per-view. But obviously the decision to go over the UK is a no-brainer because at least they, you know, they did that 3.6 million or whatever. Yeah. You know, if they had held this in Landover, Maryland, it would have been nowhere near as profitable. So they'll take the gate uh, and have to live with the pay-per-view. Uh, one thing that is absolutely not an excuse for this show not doing well pay-per-view that was cited by Linda McMahon... Uh, oh really? But, oh uh, man! And, and you know, Triple H, I think, made this excuse at one point as to why they didn't run pay per views in the U.S. in the U.K. Uh, in subsequent years. But the idea that spoilers were given out. So John Arezzi, I guess, drew the ire of Titan by giving away spoilers on his Sunday night radio show. Re- results ran in the Detroit News, uh, but there's a real minimal number of people who are getting that information, that's not going to adversely affect the buy rate. Get out of here, Linda McMahon. Yeah, that's trash. I, I've never liked that, the idea that like, oh, well, you know, all these big giant plans. <laughs> there was the famous story that Luger, you know, blabbed that he was going to win at Mania 10 to a reporter and therefore Vince changed everything. It was another one of those urban legends that went around the place. Yeah. And it's like, come on, man. Like, this, If they actually, if they are making big decisions or drawing big conclusions based on like somebody reading a spoiler here and there on like a, a local show like come on be serious not just pay-per-view hurting the SummerSlam spectacular did record lows for a pay-per-view preview on usa house show numbers dropping off huge in august yeah and i find that last note very interesting because the headline programs obviously are still 
as we said, even though they're talking about Savage and Warrior on TV, it's Flair and Savage on the house shows. And they actually, like I said, they made the point on television to say, hey, the title could change. The title is almost that kind of, again, that string of desperation we talked about. You know, the uh, the newspaper drawing a house for the company on the last show when they said that Flair was going to win the belt, that they're still kind of feeding into that to see that maybe something will happen. And Warrior Shango. And at this point, it's like Shango's getting like no time on television of, of any relevance at all. But they're still headlining with him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, things are so dire at one Florida house show. In, uh, only in Florida would they do this. Uh, uh, in July, they resorted to giving away lottery tickets to the first 1,000 people who purchased tickets. Um, That's special. Uh, there's a TV taping, uh, which included the aforementioned SummerSlam Spectacular. Uh, the Torch reported that, quote, 75% of fans in the upper deck had left. So oh. WWF ice cream bars were passed out before the final two matches in a desperate act Jesus to get people to stay. Um, Jesus Reports that TV was being dropped in several markets, worse Mm. time slots and others. I can say that that was not the case here in Cleveland. For as long as I can remember, Superstars was on 11 a.m. on Saturdays. Challenge was on 11 a.m. on Sundays. Um, When I first started watching WWF, we got Spotlight on at 10 a.m. on Saturdays. And it was confusing because Spotlight would air some of the same matches. And so I I'm like, why am I watching the same match twice? And the announcers are pretending like they don't know what happened. But um, <laughs> that didn't last for long. That spotlight got moved around quicker. Um, merchandise down 50% from the previous year. So Yeah. And why yeah. is that, probably? No Hogan. No Hogan. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, folks, we, we try to brighten your day up with tales of Wembley Stadium and 80,000 people. But, uh, yeah, the number's still pretty dire here over in the United States. And, you know, they can't run the U.K. every week. Um All right, Randy Savage's leg injury at the end of that match with the Warrior. Dave reports it will lead to him dropping the title to Flair right away because they want Warrior chasing Flair for a bit before winning the title. Plus, Flair can give Warrior a better and more memorable title victory when Warrior does regain the belt in the fall. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah, class. Yeah, uh, clearly, says Dave, Savage is being booked as the guy on the way out, and Warrior is the guy they're building around for the future. But Warrior Kamala, which was a post-SummerSlam house show headliner, was not doing any business. I couldn't. When you wrote that note that they were headlining, I couldn't fucking believe it. Kamala, who's done nothing. (laughs) Nothing! And he just looked like a loser in this feud with Undertaker, and they're putting him on top with the Warrior. I couldn't believe it. I also had the real nice, uh, you know, 2017 warm, fuzzy Roman Reigns vibes glowing here for the Warrior being the future of the company when he won the title two years ago. Yeah, what do you think about what Dave said, having watched the title? Like, it, I would agree with that. It was pretty clear that Savage was kind of being put out to pasture. Yeah, I think that there's there's very much a vibe of... of pretty much as soon as SummerSlam's done, I think that you kind of see... Like they're, they're, okay, he's like, I don't really feel like he's on the way out in the build to SummerSlam, but surely afterwards it's like, okay, Savage feels kind of an also-ran as the champ. Yeah, and we'll get to that uh, title change in a moment. You know it's coming, obviously, people. Uh, but most tellingly, no mention of Hogan at SummerSlam at all. Uh, you know, you talked about there was some chatter uh, in your social circles about whether or not he'd be there. Dave writes, they need new headliners, and Bret Hart probably improved his standing with the company while doing the job in the main event. Yeah, for sure. One of the more telling aspects of August, even before SummerSlam, is that Bret really starts feeling like more of a star 
And it feels like there's more of an emphasis to showcase him as a star, even before SummerSlam. Just like the way that you know the entrances are shot, where they are showing like the crowds with his merch everywhere. Um, and you know, and he always gets great reactions. So he's coming off more and more like a star all the time. It's really been that way ever since WrestleMania, since Mania, um, and and dating back even further than that. But there's a, there's a noticeable step up, and uh, maybe it's just because of the lack of depth. And and, and Brett's one of the few guys left. But uh, yeah. Overall. Dave says, a strong thumbs up for the two big matches. Of course, those being the two babyface versus babyface matches we've, we broke down at the top. And uh, plus, the crowd was enthusiastic. The non-main event stuff was kept short, uh, writes Meltzer. <laughs> I like this. Although, regarding the introducing the new fall programs, quote, there's always the NBA. I am dead. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to talk about those in the next show because, God... Yeah. If Warrior and Kamala is a sign of things, I need to uh, I need to see what's up. Yeah, and you know, this made the rounds because I, I love those on this day accounts that you come on Twitter. It's like 30 years ago, this happened on WWF television. So we're we're recording this very early 2023. So we're a little bit more than 30 years removed uh from SummerSlam 92, obviously. But you had this very fucking odd six-man house show headliner of Warrior Taker and Boss Man against Ramon, Nails, and Kamala. People can search YouTube for the promos. On the heel side, it is surreal seeing those three, uh, Razor Ramon, Nails, and Kamala interacting. Yes, Razor Ramon, a new name uh, to the program here. We will get to him in a bit. Yeah, what the fuck is this team? <laughs> Ramon, Nails, and Kamala. There's a social circle that, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, cocaine and stew. And, uh, go, it's, a, it's a great combination, I guess. Um, a, a combination that, um, well... Who knows if it was ever over uh, as we move to the odds and ends section here. Uh, it turns out it is not over. Pat Patterson and the yes. WWF are back together. Pat in his old position to the shock of no one. Titan, <laughs> uh, Titan actually uh, had its lawyers uh, roaming around backstage for weeks uh, asking, I, don't know, I guess, just all the wrestlers and random employees, quote, would you have a problem with Pat Patterson returning to the company? And Dave noted that pretty much everyone knew Vince's mind was made up when uh, they were asked that. Uh, the main impetus behind bringing Patterson back appears to be that the house show numbers and TV ratings, both of which have fallen to scary his historical lows. So, mm, um, yep. And it was said that Pat, here's what I teased earlier. It was said that Pat hated the Warrior Shango program. Yep. So... You know, I know that we talked about was Pat ever really gone, but you look at how horrible those post-Mania 8 programs were and how they get junked. Like, you know, right? It, it does kind of play into the fact that, you know, maybe Patterson was gone for a little bit. I, I do believe so. I do believe, I, for the same reason you've said, you know, there was that great line in The Observer when, when Patterson was gone, when Meltzer said, this period will show that Vince was really the genius behind WF booking rather than Patterson. And we referenced this quote on the last podcast, and it's a good time to remind the folks that that was quite wrong. That, yes. was, that was not the case at all. And, I mean, it is interesting, again, the, the desperation of business I remember in Tom Cole's interview that he did with Wrestling Perspective, I think it was, where he was told, Pat Patterson's coming in the office today. Not coming coming to the office. Pat Patterson is coming to the office today. Would you have a problem with that? Not a, would it be okay if he did? A, he is, will that be okay? 
So it's like that kind of, again, that's probably where the context is for like people thinking, well, his mind's made up anyway. Like, of course he's coming back. Yeah, and on that note, um, <laughs> according to Titan Sparks, <laughs> Fairfax partners determined that Pat Patterson was 100% innocent of all charges and everyone who made unconnected <laughs> allegations against him were just all a bunch of liars. That's just the weirdest thing. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. Fairfax, the WDF's private investigators, tasked to dig up dirt on other people. The other people, not their own crew, as Vince falsely claimed on uh, on Donahue, came to the conclusion that the WDF guys were actually all all fine. All well, at least, at least Pat, because uh, obviously Pat, yeah. they, the execrable Mel Phillips and, and Terry Garvin, they never come back. Uh, you know, you got to think, you know, with, you know, People saying, oh, Vince's mind's made up anyway. But the wrestlers, they had to be scared for speaking out against Pat for fear of losing a push, especially well, if they know Pat's coming back. And um, Pat did appear on screen at SummerSlam, so no time getting back uh, on the telly there. Uh, he helped uh, break up the Michaels Martell post match scrum uh, involving Sherry. Not, also, not, the only, not the only guy brought back, though. No. Chat me up, Bruce. Uh, Bruce Pritchard is back as an assistant to J.J. Dillon and Patterson. Not met with unanimous praise for the torch. <laughs> God, this guy can rebound better than, than Rodman. I, I could not, you know, when I actually looked at the uh, newsletters around this time, there is talk about what Bruce is doing when he's not in the WWF, and he's doing like some really shitty indie stuff. Wait, he's and, in the GWF? And, he, and it sounds awful. Like, it sounds putrid, some of the stuff that he's doing. And it's like, he's this the, guy... He does, doesn't he do, like, a heel authority figure? He may do. Deal? I'm it's... almost positive in the GW. He did. The GWF, God, that, that's a whole different thing. But, God, that got a lot of play in the uh, newsletters, especially the Torch. The Torch, like, had cover stories, like, multiple cover stories on the GWF. Yeah, global, was... past, like, 1990, my, my global following is, like, zero because just... I, I mean, know, but other than Waltman and Jerry Lynn, what did it ever do? There's nothing. Yeah, exactly. That's it. It's like, this is, I, I wouldn't draw to it, but Bruce is back somehow. Not, not met with unanimous praise. Yeah, I love that's that Um, Not met with unanimous praise in the office of Titan Towers was an article in Penthouse Magazine written by Jeff Savage, uh, who, of course, uh, did a lot of stuff for the San Diego Union Tribune uh, that we talked about. In uh, 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 part two, that would have been the Titan Gate episode. Uh, most of the stuff in the Penthouse Magazine article was already well known, uh, but Jerry McDevitt tried to block publication of the article anyway. Uh, McDevitt, <laughs> McDevitt noted that the main source of the article, Lee Cole, was a liar and convicted felon, and that Savage never even asked the WWF for info. But then Savage actually produced phone records showing that he left message with Vince McMahon himself, <laughs> and he never received a reply. Another apparent source in the article is Vince McMahon's former driver, Jim Stewart, who recounted the details of Vince allegedly raping mm -hmm. Rita Chatterton and then firing her for breaking the corporate rule about having sex with other employees of the company. Yeah, Jim Stewart's always a name that I find to be a curious kind of uh, bit of wallpaper in the wrestling history of, of, of things that happen with WWF. Um, he gets, I think, paid off right in the end. They all get paid off. They all get I mean, that's, that's the general finish. It's fairly, fairly confident in saying that that's what happens. He makes a bit of noise and he goes away. Yes. Uh, well, and that brings us to these next two talking points. I, uh, I know I we, 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 we promised we would be 
essentially scandal-free, but we do want to touch on some of these things, go back to them. So speaking of Rita Chatterton, she was dropped by her lawyer because it turns out the statute of limitations ran out long ago, so the lawsuit was going nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, this... as it turns out, uh, we've had a change in laws here, and uh, that is uh, uh, back in the news in 2023. Go for it, Rhea. I love it. Yes. Um, speaking of lawsuits going nowhere, Murray Hodgson and lawyer Ed Nussbaum, they split so Vince's countersuit appears to be have been effective. This is, of course, when it becomes quite apparent uh, to the Observer uh, uh, or to, to the newsletter writers, of course, including the Observer and the Torch, that Murray Hodgson was a con man and was lying. And that his uh, promo that he cut, as, as Vince called it on the Donnie show, uh, was just that, a promo and not grounded in reality. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I've got to get a quote here uh, to, to uh, share with the people. I am. I will say that considering I have, I usually have no regard for people who do what Murray Hodgson's doing. But the fact that it's happening to Vince gives me, makes him kind of, even though he's he's an asshole, clearly <laughs> for making this up. Especially because like it ruins Pat's, like this could have ruined Patterson's life. And if it was, mm-hmm. if it was all bullshit, then then there's nothing redeemable or commendable about that. But the fact that he did just scorch Vince and out bullshit him on national television will always make me a fan of Murray Hodgson for that alone. So even though I can't condemn anything else he did, but uh, oh. yeah, and the and 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 something else that we talked about on our previous show comes as part of the story too. Yes. So I am reading this verbatim from the May Fourteenth, ninety two torch. The original deposition with Murray Hodgson two weeks ago was postponed because the WF's attorney, Jerry McDevitt, did not have a license to practice law in Connecticut. We, we talked about that previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was rescheduled for this week, although that was also postponed, apparently due to the WWF delaying it. McDevitt told Torch Weekly that the original deposition was postponed because, quote, because Hodgson, quote, no-showed and is scared about what will come out from his past. McDevitt just laughed when talking about Hodgson's past and called him, quote, a flaming Fucking fag. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jerry McDev, what have you... <laughs> what in the world are we doing here? Uh, I, I understand that this is the verbiage he used to many people. I think he told Tom Cole the same. I think the the, the, the word was he's a closet fag was to, to Tom Cole when he's describing uh, Murray Hodgson. So, yeah, not our words, folks. Don't misconstrue him. But, I yeah, this was... They thought they had a big win with this revelation. Probably um, had more to do with the fact that he was lying, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, uh, remember that Stamford Library story, like the WF wanted to do, in the midst of just being killed by, by, like, bad news story after bad news story? They wanted to do something nice for the Stamford Library. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when in doubt, do something nice for the local library. But then that got yeah. camped, the library. There was, like, too much heat on them, and they are like, well, I guess, you know, <laughs> we'll just keep our books for, for now that we have here. <laughs> well, on August 3rd of 1992, at Terry Connors Rink, uh, the WWF ran a show which drew an excess of $50,000 and it was donated to the Stanford Library Fund. Uh, that was he- that was actually headlined by Savage and Bret Hart against Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels. Oh, there you go. Uh, also, it had Owen Hart and Coco Beware against the Nasty Boys. Or the... <laughs> Stop it. Jonah Jerry McDivitt would have called the Nasty yeah, Boys. Oh, my God. <laughs> Pair no, those new stories together. No, 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 no. Okay, now obviously the use of that term is disgusting, and this doesn't compare 
It makes it makes the new and it makes the new no, no, Raiders seem. But what I'm going to say is is also pretty offensive because I'm looking at this card at Terry Connors rank. <laughs> Bushwhacker Butch sub for Kerry Von Erich versus Kamala. Oh my God. Bushwhacker Luke sub for Davy Boy Smith versus Repo Man. <laughs> Those were two of the eight matches on the card. That was 25% of the card. That's the show. You also had Crush against the Brooklyn Brawler and Sergeant Slaughter against the Mountie. Oh, God. And they wonder why things attacked him. My God. I, I would have, I wouldn't have learned. If, I'll tell you what, if I was a kid, I would have, wouldn't have learned how to read. <laughs> if this is what I, doing, I, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I would sit through a lot. To see, you know, Brett, nope. Sean, Savage, and Flair. But I don't know if I'd be able to make it through that. Yeah. Um, WWF, uh, you know, in the news more, Randy Savage goes on Arsidio Hall, and they fed him a question about steroids, to which Savage immediately replied, they were poison and kids shouldn't use them. Although he did, quote, experiment with them at one point. Dave Meltzer uh, would like to admit to, quote, experimenting with using a typewriter <laughs> at one point. <laughs> I love Dave. I Honestly, when you when you put this in here, I was surprised Arsenio's folks took another chance on a wrestler in the WWF after Hogan fucked them over. Savage always kind of dealt with this in like the, the same way, where we'd always joke about how he exp- you know, I experimented with steroids, but they gave me PMS was always his line. Yeah. Uh, to try, try and get a laugh and joke at the whole thing and kind of, again, to kind of brush it aside. Yeah, and we mentioned a few minutes ago that Savage was de-emphasized after SummerSlam. We'll get there. Um, But this is pre-SummerSlam where he's still the world champion, still a big deal. And did you catch that video that they did on him? Yeah. I I guess it was building to his Arsenio Hall appearance, so they actually hyped it on WWF television. Really trying to make Savage look a big deal. It showed his win over Steamboat. Yeah. It was a, uh, a, a lot of effort was put into it, and it feels to me... Like, this was the, okay, focus on Savage. Liz is gone. We're, we're, we're really putting our, our steam on Savage here, trying to re-focus kind of refocus yeah. on him being the star. And, and it wasn't just his big wrestling moments. It showed him, like, I, I think, like, on Regis and Kathy Lee mm-hmm. and with uh, Robin Leach. So it was, you know, WWF was, was really aware of its floundering reputation. It was something uh, you'd across- expect. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was something you'd expect them to do for Hogan. Is the way yes. I looked at it at the time. It, it was like, look at what a big star, Randy. It, it, it also was kind of desperation. But, um, mm. yeah, anyway, just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, Randy Savage on Arsenio Hall. And, um, yeah, he admits to experimenting with steroids. <laughs> um, but uh, back to that Penthouse article written by Jeff Savage. One of the can of worms reopened was the death of Nancy Argentino with strong allegations that Vince paid off local law enforcement to cover up, cover up her alleged homicide at the hands of Jimmy Snuka. Dave notes that there's no concrete evidence that anything like that went on, although the family did sue Snuka for wrongful death and won a $500,000 judgment against him. Uh, But Snuka, sorry son of a bitch that he was, uh, claimed (laughs) to be destitute and and was unable to pay a cent of the money to date. Yeah, well, as I know, my as I uh, noted my rebuttal, I wouldn't have paid him anything for his last run either. Well, they did pay him. I mean, that's pretty shameful <laughs> that he claims to be destitute. And didn't pay him oh well, yes, it's a total scumbag move, but you know, yeah. again, uns- sadly unsurprising. Yeah, the quality of Vince Russo's radio show apparently cannot compare to former partner John Arezzi. <laughs> that's written- a shock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, uh, that was written in the uh, 
July 13th Observer, uh, Steve Beverly, formerly of Matwatch, really buried Russo in a letter to the Observer in the May 4th edition of the Observer, if anyone checks that out. Um, so, yeah, Russo, we, we talked about this on the last, or two episodes ago, I should say. Um, you know, he was working with John Arezzi. Arezzi wanted to, you know, cover Titan Gate like an actual news story. Russo wanted to be WWF-friendly, um, you know. And look, I mean, it, it paid off for Vince Russo in the end doing that but um yeah 31 years on vince russo's radio show his podcast is is as strong as it ever was yeah which is to say not (laughs) as good as it ever was (laughs) yeah Yeah. um all right so dave Meltzer got to see hogan's new movie mr nanny Mm. uh and uh originally i was called rough stuff (laughs) was being reported in the uh, newsletters but yes mr nanny and everyone is apparently shocked at how small hogan looks when he's off steroids and uh speaking of hogan his deal with New Japan Pro Wrestling has not been signed yet, but New Japan is already talking about Hogan versus Inoki as the main event of the Tokyo Dome show in January, which is, of course, now Wrestle Kingdom. But they always had a big show uh, in the Tokyo Dome at the start of the year. The holdup, though, for Hogan and Inoki uh, apparently is that New Japan, which, you know, the U.S. promotion is doing shitty at this time. Japanese wrestling is on fire. New it's on Japan fire. It's on fucking is like, fire. It's yeah. the best thing in the world of wrestling. Yes. Is fucking Japanese, the, the, the surge of Japan for you know, the, the, the end of the 80s. Oh, my God. Yeah, and to that point, New Japan's drawing well already without Hogan, so Hogan's kind of in a, a tough negotiating position, says Dave. Uh, mm. Hogan also, for what it's worth, is claiming a serious neck injury at this yeah. time. This, this guy will say anything. These things are connected. Those things are totally connected. The fact that he, all of a sudden, I see this as positioning. This is total positioning. Hogan saying he wants this thing with New Japan. I believe that New Japan may earnestly have been thinking about Hogan and Anoki. I don't know that Hogan was ever genuinely thinking about going to Japan at this time. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't believe he is. And I think that the fact that he finds himself in the tough negotiating position is why the, the serious neck injury suddenly appears and he has a reason not to do it. Yes, and uh, you know that, um, you know he shows up on some WWF commercials in the, you know, later on. Yeah, October they start running commercials where he is on them, and it's the first time his face has been seen. It's quite striking, obviously, because uh, as we're going to get to, he's not, he's like, yeah, he's persona non grata for like quite a while, and then all of a sudden when his face pops up, it's like, oh, there's Hogan again, and sure enough. Meltzer says that he might be on the horizon for Mania, and we know what happens in 93. Neither Hogan nor Anoki end up wrestling on that dome show. So, yeah. Um, you know, obviously, yes, you mentioned Hogan does come back for WrestleMania 9. Uh, rumors uh, for the location of that event uh, were abound during this period here in the summer of 92. Uh, MSG was talked about. Nope. Mm. Uh, over, <laughs> uh, Wade Keller speculated that, well, you know, if this SummerSlam is such a big success, maybe they'll do WrestleMania overseas. Nope. And, nope. uh as we talked about last time, there was talk of a Hogan homecoming, perhaps, in Tampa. And that was nope as well. Yeah. So, uh, of course, Las Vegas, Nevada, during the one year that Las Vegas tried marketing itself as family-friendly, uh, gets the call. And that we will be uh, talking about that uh, several shows down the road. So, coming and going, one of our favorite sections we do yes. every podcast, uh, a real rogues gallery here, Carrie Von Eric. Oh, he was sup- boy. He was the one who was supposed to work Papa Shango at SummerSlam. Uh, Tito replaces him. Kerry is gone. And in addition to that aforementioned loss to Sean, Kerry did a bunch of jobs to Kamala on the way out. Not exactly reminiscent of 1983 world class. <laughs> and, no. you know, 
we joke about just how it, you know, Kerry sucked uh, during this time period. His head wasn't on straight. Uh, no laughing matter. Six months later, obviously, uh, he was dead. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of there's always a lot of lighthearted things to chuckle about uh, when it comes to the world of wrestling during this time, especially with kind of the, the, the wild behavior that we, you know, we talked about Davy Boy and Nightheart early, Night earlier on. The, the Kerry one is just really, when you like look at the deterioration, it's such a sad deal. And obviously everybody knows the story about what ends up happening. And there's a story in The Observer, if anybody's gone back during that period of time where people are writing in letters after Kerry dies. This is probably the only time we're going to talk about it because when he dies, it's not really put into the WWF's uh, story, I guess. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a story in there about a guy who was a barman, I believe it was, and... Kerry Von Erich like calls he's in the hotel and he calls down and he tells them to get things ready because the world famous Kerry Von Erich is coming down and you know it's just like it's a really bizarre story about Kerry kind of you know probably completely off his tits on on whatever he's on but like he's kind of thinking he's still a big deal and there's no one around and no one really cares and then he writes he's writing he's on his own and he's just writing this note there's no one around in the bar and he's just writing on a napkin and he gets up and leaves, and the barman goes over to the napkin and just says, uh, "Woe is me, or is it wow? Kerry Von Erich. Kerry Von Erich has left the building." And then, oh. and that's that's what it says on the napkin. And then he goes to his room, and that's you know, and then he dies shortly afterwards. Not that day, but you know what I mean, like yeah. you know, like shortly thereafter. And, and and you know, Brett tells the story in his book about how you know there were times when Kerry at the end of '92 was, yeah, not the end of '92, but around this period of time, is saying that he's already made the decision to you know join his brothers, as it were. Yeah, and you know, obviously, Dave, I'm sure wishes he would never have to write them at all. But if memory serves me correct, the the Kerry obituary is like the first great obituary written by Meltzer the, and the it, dynasty yeah yeah and you, you read it and it's just like I to me the Von Erich and I know they're making that movie I, it's gonna be interesting to see if that gets like any play outside of wrestling circles because it's it, it's a story so tragic like I can like think of someone like my wife if she watched and she like she doesn't know like the Von Erichs from, mm. from anything like if she were to watch that like it would take her aback. like because it's just so insane it's that, wild, like, yeah. That, that 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 like one family could have that much tragedy. I mean, here in the states, the only family we can compare it to would be the Kennedys. Kennedys, yeah, obviously. obviously. So, um, yeah, it just so Kerry's gone. Uh, Road Warrior Hawk he quits the WWF the day after SummerSlam. We joked about this earlier. Uh, he and the Berserker disappear shortly after SummerSlam and were suspended <laughs> for six weeks. As a result, Hawk was said to be fed up and just quit with the inciting incident being the Penthouse article. We're back to that again. That listed him as being suspended for drugs in February, which was true. Yep. But Vince had promised that that would be a secret within the company, which it obviously wasn't. Uh, my opinion is that Rocco is still more embarrassing than having, uh, having <laughs> call you, uh, you know, saying that you failed a, a, a drug test. But yeah. LOD, uh, at least Hawk, gone. Yeah, uh, you know, if, if that was anything, that surely was nothing but, like, the final straw. Because you, you can just, you know, between everything that's happened this year, it's like he's he, he was one foul out the door. Um, I, I, I'm not surprised. It's, it's, Rocco is just the kiss of death for this thing. Like, Wade had written that he thought like it was one of the corniest things he'd ever seen on WWE oh, television. And, and like, you know, like the newsletter writers at the time, they, you know, they, they generally viewed the WWF as corny in this time period, even though it was effective and successful. 
and like it was just like it was like corny in like a really shitty way yeah i mean and it was i we ripped i mean, rocco was just the dirt worst um i have a question for you if lod stays which may have just been untenable due to the steroid issue because i yeah. hawk, hawk wasn't going to get off <laughs> hawk, but, hawk, no. yeah hawk I mean, he didn't give a shit uh but do we think the plan was for them not the disasters to get the belt certainly when you bring Ellering back at WrestleMania 8, mm. it seems that, like, okay, we're doing this, and LOD will get their revenge on money and can get the belts back. That does, I mean, when you look at it in that, when you look at WrestleMania 8, it feels like, okay, well, we're getting LOD chasing money in, and they're going to beam for the belts. Great. The timing of how this all actually plays out in the end wouldn't indicate that they were going to go there because Hawk is still doing house shows late July and August, like it's no big deal after the disasters before he got the belts um, for Money Inc. But so the fact that like they put and the fact they put LOD over at SummerSlam as well doesn't really indicate they have any clue that Hawk's going to leave. You know what though? Like LOD was a hard act to get the job. Oh yeah, and, and, and I, especially yeah, and, and and I just wonder like if the plan all along was LOD winning the titles from Money Inc. and then they kind of realize okay we just can't count on Hawk we can't count on the LOD they'll. Still beat Money Inc. at SummerSlam, but mm. we'll take the belts off Money Inc. Right, right. And LOD will still get the win, but they don't get the titles now. And, you know, we'll just put them on the disasters for a little bit. And, you know, that winds up meaning nothing anyway. We'll we'll kind of, like, pick that back up in the next episode. What no, they- I, I, I agree with that. From the perspective of back in March when the disasters was just like a stopgap feud for, for Money Inc. And they did the shitty DQ, the countout finish. Um mm-hmm. But when you look at that, you're like, oh yeah, the disasters are clearly the choice to get the belt. You don't get that impression at all. So yeah, mm-hmm. I do. I do think that it would have been LOD at that point. But maybe as you know, as, as, as the months wore on, and this Rocco thing didn't exactly set the world on fire like they thought. Maybe and, and again, Hawk being less than reliable, it's like, yeah, let's go with the safe, the safer option. All right, so Hawk's gone. So there is talk of Animal being pushed as a single. Oh God, 2006. You know, remember that. <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, and, um, you know, uh, I don't know if this is better than uh, John Heidenreich or not, but uh, <laughs> Animal and Crush are put together as the quote unquote new version of the Legion of Doom. This is on the fall European tour. Yes, they went back to Europe rather hmm. quickly in the fall. We'll touch on that in a moment. But uh, apparently people accepted Crush as the new guy in the team without a problem, which is a shocker to me. Uh, but later, yeah. there is really no guarantee that Animal and Crush uh, will be a new LOD, uh, doesn't make TV, uh, because <laughs> partly because Animal's pitching for his brother Mark to come in as the new member of the team. Yeah, that's that's hideous, you know? <laughs> that's that's a hideous idea anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm not in the least bit sad that we didn't get a new LOD. I, I wonder if, you know, Animal and Crush on the European tour was just like a, again, just like a, a thing for the house shows, because like Animal's yeah. there, Let's just kind of oh, let's put Crush with him to fill because we've seen this before on Houses where a guy just fills in. But then they're like, oh well, maybe let's just dress it up a little bit and kind of let's go with it and see what happens. Just like an experiment, really. And you know, they say except to do without without a problem, but they didn't do it. So and thank God. Yeah, uh, Animal and Hawk. It was not a good split. Everyone's saying. Uh, mm-hmm. And Hawk was uh, seen hanging around backstage at WCW, and uh, re- according to reports, looking like he took all of Lex Luger's IcoPro. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, again, Hawk, he, he wasn't going to stop doing his drugs for anybody at that time. So, you know, I, I, yeah, can you imagine a ragtag LOD without Hawk? Oh, 
Hawk's the, the Hawk is the charisma in LOD. Yeah. Yeah, like without oh what a rush, it's just the powers of pain. Yeah. That's so, the last thing the shit division needs. Yeah, so real quick, I, I took it in I don't know why I have so many notes on this. I the, the newsletters like covered this like quite a bit. Um uh, well, like, yeah, okay. when you think about it, the end of the road warriors, given what they were, that's what it looked like. It, I yeah, guess it's sure. it a big deal. Yeah, and Hawk, yeah, and we'll hit on that in a minute, just at the end of their WWF run. Uh Hawk ends up going to Japan. Mm-hmm. Teams with Scott Norton and Ken, uh, Ketsuke Sasaki as the new Road Warriors, uh, yeah. which makes the relationship uh, with Animal even worse since Animal was trying to come into New Japan as Hawk's partner. Uh, Animal does get Hawk to drop the new Road Warriors name. So instead, fans will get to submit team name ideas. I like this. In yeah. a contest, and the winning name of uh, uh, will be revealed at the Tokyo Dome show. I like that idea a lot. Yes, and um, uh, Hellraisers, as you know, a sweet name for that Hawk fucking and, and rules. Well, that's a better team name anyway. Yeah, uh, for that. Hawk and Ketsuke Sasaki. Uh, uh, Sasaki, they say, may or may not change his name to Power Warrior. Which I think he does. Yes, he does. And he does uh, indeed. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting because, I mean, uh, well, I mean, you may as well read the next. No, actually, because it's over. It's over for both of them. Okay, well, um, Animal quits the WWF. Yeah. Okay, so there's yeah, no, no, no new Road Warriors. Uh, you know, he's just kind of a man to himself. Uh, he suffers a broken tailbone in Japan on September fifteenth, mm. uh, and works uh, <laughs> works through it for a month. At least that's his story, because the WWF is claiming to have no knowledge of this happening. Yeah, I think Lloyd's bank is shit themselves. <laughs> and so they should be, because he ends up claiming. Does he get like some fucking deal where like? They pay him a policy because he takes one out that says that he can he's only capable of wrestling in tag team matches because his injury is so bad. So they pay him on a full Lloyd's policy while he's claiming. like, And, and, and returns to wrestling, obviously, eventually, as a tag team wrestler with Hawk and gets paid on his policy and a full salary with, uh, with the WWF, which is quite the, quite the special agreement there that Animal made with Lloyd's. Yeah, wow, what a... What an incredible uh, scheme that is there. It's kind of <laughs> like, you know, setting up a burglary of your own home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, Ken so Kaiser. It's over. It's over yeah, well, well just, just one last note. Ken Kaiser, he does a charity benefit. Uh, Ken Kaiser's an MLB umpire. Uh, he does mm-hmm. a charity benefit on November 13th. So we're going way into the future. The Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, show up and hug each other. That was the first time they had ever... Uh, spoken or even seen each other since the breakup so wow. all right liam lod you know they last basically exactly two years you know that for so long this was an act thought to be custom made for the wwf vision yeah not a great two-year run at all not a great two-year run and when you th- again but this is one of those things where you start to see this throughout and really you didn't get it a lot in the 80s like the late 80s but in the 90s where like especially when you go back and you read the coverage because obviously i wasn't watching in 1990 1991 but these things that like the newsletters all talk about like if this ever happens and usually it revolved around if this guy goes to the wwf because of the way that the, 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 the wrestling world was set up at the time if this guy goes to the WWF, can you imagine what it will be? And in almost every one of those cases, it was a disappointment and, and, and was not what it could have been. And, and LOD is like the textbook because LOD stood out during those periods of time as being like, this is the act that Vincent Mann would be like, he'd be his, he'd be like his first round draft pick, right? You would mm-hmm. think like they, 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 they marked in, they got the look, they got the fucking the physiques. Hawk could talk. They, they are 
so obviously destined for direct success whenever they go there, if the day ever comes. They go there and they just become like, you know... It's a cartoon. It's it, it was too cartoony. I think anyone who enjoyed them and knew who they were from Crockett just saw it, it like you know, like it, right down to the shoulder pads. They were just like toy shoulder pads, yeah. and it just they it didn't help that they had nobody decent to work with either. That is that is a key. I I really feel like that is it's a combination of a, oh, the three things. The the cartoon look for sure is a big one. I think mm. the fact that they had nobody to work with absolutely is a big, big part of this. And I think the fact that they were slotted as like just the best tag team and not really, it didn't really feel like they ever integrated with anybody that was outside of that realm. Um, kind of, it, it feels like it puts like a ceiling on them when they've got like no one good to work with. It's like, they've got this ceiling on them, but they're not doing anything either. So it's like, why are they not, you know, they could, they, if they could be more, we're not going to see that in this situation. And basically it was a situation where it felt like they were spinning their wheels for two years. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people my age, like friends, like very good friends of mine who, you know, not like huge wrestling fans, but they watched WWF during this time. And they always like kind of remember oh, yeah. the road warriors. Cause they'd heard of them. And I, I think they like think like, Oh yeah, the road warriors. I remember that they were cool. But like, I think for anyone who is, who saw them before this, it, you know, it's just like basically every act that came from, Crockett or WCW. It just was a disappointment. Uh, certainly, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about Ric Flair uh, in that yep. regard as well. Uh, okay. Speaking of disappointing, okay. <laughs> as we continue coming and going, after all that talk for so goddamn long, how many podcast episodes have we talked about Conan coming in with the robot suit? Please? He's on his way. It's like Glacier. <laughs> yeah. I, but I mean, there have to be at least five podcasts. I think it goes back to the end of like 90. Or at least yeah. the start of 91, where it's like, Conan will be coming in with the robot suit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's gone after working <laughs> dark matches. After working, uh, he worked as Relampago. Am I saying that right? I think Rel- so. R- Relampago. Uh, the fl- that is the flyer uh, it translates into. So apparently the relationship with AAA went south, and Conan's Lucha Libre style just wasn't the fit for the WWF. Uh, unfortunately, the real nail in the coffin may have been Conan and Vince having a blow-up backstage, and Paul Diamond, I love when this happens, he just <laughs> happened to be standing around saying, well, you, you know, I could probably fit in that robot suit, and guess what? Paul Diamond all of a sudden is in the robot suit playing Relampago, and Conan is gone. Yeah, sh- real shades of a Skinner saying, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the same size as Matt Bourne, I could probably be a doink. Yeah, or yeah, or Hulk Hogan, you know, back, you know, after uh, Ricky Steamboat asks for paternity leave, you know, telling Hulk Hogan pointing, him, what about him as the next Intercontinental Champion? Of <laughs> talk back, you know, allegedly. Um, okay, so yeah, Conan is gone. Um, I, I, you know, <laughs> well, let, let's jump. We'll, we'll jump to Diamond in, in a second, but um, you know that you know. Um, Conan was probably just not a good fit for the WWF in 1992 anyway. No, I mean, when you look at you know, his style when he when he went to WCW in like 95 and he was he was more polished then than he was in 92. And it's like his, his you know, Conan's, you know, sloppy ass lucha, like working <laughs> yeah. with Berserker and Kamala, like, God, that, you know, I can see why Vince, you almost wonder how it got this far with like Conan and Vince with all of this buildup after all this time, like where Vince, like Conan is just, if, yeah, he just feels like he's not somebody that Vince would go for. If you actually watch him during that period of time, um, 
And there were no vignettes either. So you can no. tell Vince was probably skeptical. That's it. Like it's just, he's got he's, he's cold to it. Um yeah, what a treat we missed, you know. All the all the matches we could have had with the fucking stellar heels like Repo Man and <laughs> Skinner and you know, this nails V Max Moon, like with Conan trying to lucha it up. No oh, fucking boy. way. Um, it seems that like they had this idea for the masked hero babyface for years, but never got it right. You know, the blazer was always supposed to be that. Um, mm-hmm. And he was just like, nothing. This guy is like... Battle the, cat. Battle cat, yeah. They try it here. It doesn't work. Fucking avatar, you know? Like, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. They can't do this. And, you know, from Conan's perspective, he didn't exactly need the WWF mid-card money at this time because he was a big star no. in Mexico and obviously would become a much bigger star. Um, you know, something that I look forward to talking about as the uh, months and years roll on is how, you know, WWF and WCW may be at all-time lows, but you've got other promotions, yeah. like, you know, just doing, like, you know, making penetration in the U.S., like AAA. Yeah. And, Love Machine and Eddie Guerrero getting hot. And... Smoky Mountain, certainly yeah. ECW down the line, USWA. Um but, you know, okay, so Pat, uh, Pat Diamond, Paul Diamond, I'm thinking of Pat Tanaka, I'm getting a bad company on the mind there. Uh, he does one last job as Kato, or Kato, as your friend Lord Alfred Hayes would say. Um, one last job to Tatanka. Uh, he, he'll be testing out the robot suit in Memphis, apparently, because there is a working arrangement with Memphis now. That's the next podcast, guys. We'll, we'll hit on that um, because a real shocker that leads to. Uh, he will be known as Star Chaser, though, apparently, not Relampago. Uh, but he actually debuts on WWF television as the Comet Kid. Yeah. And Dave said he looked good with the hair extensions to look like Conan. I did not think he looked that good. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, especially the rocketing up the stairs, that was fucking sad. When he, like, he would, like, <laughs> Jumps up the steps. Yeah, he was pushing a button on his backpack and just jumping up a stair. That was hideous. Uh, you, from there, in, in, the newsletters say he's going to be called Maximilian Moves. But yep. then he's actually just Max Moon is the name settled on for the gimmick. And good Lord, Mr. O'Rourke, this is a lot of work and thought behind the scenes being put in for a gimmick that just did not last long and did not work. Yeah, it's again, this is like, it's ill, it's ill it's ill prepared in the sense that for as much as like they thought this was this robot suit was cool uh you know the 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 shooting the the fireball out of the the wrist that's kind of that's kind of neat i guess but like other than that it's like they don't position this guy at all like he's anything special he just comes out one day and now we've got a new wrestler called max moon there's no vignettes no explanation no no he's involved with anybody in any kind of an angle uh, he's just there. He's just the, the the new wrestler on the scene, and you just kind of watch him rolling and tumbling around and trying to do a style that's different because he knows it needs to be different to be. Diamond wasn't a terrible worker. I mean, he, he was not a bad choice. No, he was not a bad choice for this role. Don't get me wrong. It's just that you know, if you if you're gonna do this, you can't go by half measures and expect that it's gonna work. And you know, if you don't go by, by if you don't actually go all the way with it, then it doesn't have a chance to start with. And it didn't have a chance. Diamond did one last job as Kato to Tatanka, of all people. We'll see who does the job in the end. Yes. <laughs> so, look. And another thing is, too. God, we have been talking about this now for two plus years. All these new characters that just stink. They wrote, yeah. It's a horrible, horrible pattern. We're talking about, you know, that the business being down. We need new hot characters. We need new stars. And you look at the introduction for so many of these guys, 
and it's just flat as hell. But, mm -hmm. and that will bring us to our next point. We still have one big, we're going Broadway tonight. We still have we one big conversation left to have because finally we have what looks like a new witted character in Titan Sports. Uh, and that is Scott Hall coming in as Razor Ramon. Now, when Hall quits WCW in May, it was reported that he would be playing, quote, a Fonzie-like character. <laughs> I find that uh, interesting. Then it was maybe going to be a, quote, biker. Reportedly, uh, in dark matches, Hall did not really get over it first as, quote, Razor Ramon. Yeah. But we get this introduction, you know, that's just dark matches. We don't see that on TV. We get this set of introductory vignettes. And I think, Liam, that these are the best vignettes we get for a new character, perhaps going all the way back to Ted DiBiase as the Million Dollar Man, or at the very least, Mr. Perfect. Your yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think that uh, when before I even saw these notes, I was trying to come up with the, the comparison. Perfect was slightly different in the sense that he was actually already around and they were just repackaging him as Mr. Perfect. So it wasn't like this was like a new guy, completely new guy, fresh off, um, you know, on TV for the first time, seeing him in those vignettes, as I remember it, right? He came in just as Kurt Hennig and then... You're oh, right, you're right. He had worked a little bit and that, yes, that wasn't now, our first look. That's a very good point. And then now he's known as Mr. Perfect, whereas this is the first glimpse. It's like the Ted DiBiase Million Dollar Man uh, situation in that instance. So it's like, I, I, I do like that comparison because you look at the guy, he looks different, he talks different, he acts different, the, the vibe and the ambiance is great. Um, he comes off like he knows who he is. And yes. it's not something that's based on a one-note joke like IRS or Repo Man or Skinner. He's just, this is, he's got a, a lifestyle and a look and there's something interesting about him and you actually want to know more. And these are very well done. They're very well executed. Um, I, as a quick question, did you at this point, I'm assuming you knew he was the Diamond Stud? Yes. And I find that interesting because the Diamond Stud, when you watch him, doesn't really come off like he's ready to be a superstar. No, and it's fascinating to me. How, and, you know, let's be honest. Hall, and, and we'll, you know, again, uh, it's, it's more for next time, but he kind of struggles at least at first. I mean, he's not like, he, he's not a great worker yet mm. at this point, but it is really interesting how they were able to take, you know, the diamond stud. And, and Hall had never come across as a star. I know that people had wanted him to be, you know, it, before he was the diamond stud, you know, going back to the eighties, he was kind of like mm. a Magnum TA ripoff, yeah. but he wasn't very good at that either. And it is very interesting that they do this Scarface ripoff thing and it just clicks. Like to me, you know, making the comparisons to the DiBiase vignettes and the perfect vignettes, why, I would probably put these above perfect, not, a, you know, but not quite at the level of DiBiase. It's like, you watch these, you watch the DiBiase ones, and it feels like a main event level character. The perfect yeah. ones, the perfect ones are amusing. They're memorable, but it's like, okay, this guy can fucking play a good game of billiards. Like, <laughs> that, makes, that means he's going to be the WF champion. Yeah, I, I guess the, uh, the, the big, I guess the, the measuring stick, because, and the reason why DiBiase is the measuring stick when those vignettes were finished and DiBiase first came out, he was immediately over like a main event guy. Yes. 
and I don't, I don't know that I would say the same for Razor, but it was no. far closer than, than, than most, well, almost every other instance. Yeah, and, and I, I think what also helps him, again, hammering this point, is other than The Undertaker, you know, who didn't get, who, who just was introduced kind of cold, mm. unintended, it's Survivor Series, <laughs> there's just been no good new characters in this promotion for like three years. Yeah, yeah, it's been that and, long. <laughs> and, and so it's like, okay, you know, Here's a guy, and you know they they had seven of these things. Um, people can find the complete playlist on YouTube. And again, you know, again, man, go back to Chris Harrington and his spreadsheets. If you could show me that these ten to fifteen minutes that they invested of TV time in introducing this Razor Ramon character, if you could show me that that would be a killer on TV ratings in 2023, then so be it. I lose. I'm wrong. But I don't think they would be. And this is the kind of stuff that is so uh, necessary to getting characters over and is something that is not done enough in modern wrestling. Like, it, it was something like you watch these things and he's hitting a lot of this. You, you mentioned not being a one note character, but he's hitting a lot of the same notes throughout uh, these vignettes. But it's like you, he comes across first as like kind of as an asshole but also it's cool like these other characters yeah. just, are just so shitty like you don't even like you don't even want to boo them like no. they're so <laughs> shitty like like this like you're just like a fucking alligator man a guy who says gonna repo I'm like fuck dude just fuck off like Ray's <laughs> going, you're like fuck off you're like, like yeah you're like you're like this guy i mean even though he's a heel you know he was he, he came across as cool it's and interesting he's got yeah and he was just you know? yeah you actually want to watch the vignettes Moving forward, uh, what do you think about the uh, long-standing urban legend that Vince McMahon had never seen Scarface or really didn't know what it was? I believe that completely. Okay, he, I, he's, completely I mean, he, I mean, he, it's funny. Watch, I mean, he was obviously just ripping off Scarface. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, I mean, I mean, he was basically just like recycling lines. Um, uh, literally, I don't know about literally, but uh, if he was recycling <laughs> lines, but maybe he was. Um, but yeah, I, 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 these worked. These were a home run, and. Um, yeah, big things uh, were on the horizon for Razor Ramon as we get to in a minute. I'll, I'll mention this real quick. I, I took it out of the notes, but I do want to mention it. I, I just think it's kind of funny, the symmetry. Razor's WrestleMania 9 opponent. Oh, God. Bob Backlund. Yeah. And, you know, Bob is brought back. Um, th there was a lot of talk about it in the newsletters around in July and August. It was a sh considered a shocking return. He comes back. He works a house show. I think it's July 1st. But he's kept off TV, um, you know, for a while. And we're not going to talk about him until the next episode because we've only seen uh, on our viewing. So I don't know how far you've gone, but I've only seen the first uh, video for him. I want to watch all of it before I can make a full comment. But I think it's so interesting that those two characters wind up proposing each other at WrestleMania 9 because... It was such a cool heel character and such a sh nerdy babyface character. Same yeah. time, same time. Their read on what I, and it's like it's actually a very interesting study in in contrast that like both of those guys were much better when they swapped roles and their read on what those guys were going to be uh, coming in is like the complete I was <laughs> the complete opposite, but kind of is the complete opposite of you know their peak position in the company upon their returns. So more misreads. Uh Yes. Well, plan B. Here. As we alluded we, to. Yes, we need to get to this. Plan B. Ric Flair 
regained the WWF world title from Randy Savage at the September 1st TV tapings in Hershey, Pennsylvania. This was actually really messed up, as Meltzer reports, because they do 12 minutes of a match early in the show, and then Vince McMahon shut things down midway, and everyone brawled back to the dressing room. So they went out again later in the night and did a match more to Vince's liking with Savage selling the knee, quote, properly, and Mm. Razor Ramon kicking him in the knee after 25 minutes to cost him the title. Dave gives the match three and a quarter, which aired on primetime and did only a 2.4 rating. Jesus. A lot of things to unpack here. Yeah. Uh, we, We should... Let's talk about Razor Ramon's involvement here because he's still fresh on the mind. Razor, they really throw him in the deep end right off the rip. Um, I I don't know if they sensed the vignettes were getting over well or if they were just hell-bent on doing it out of necessity because the heel side was so weak. But I I looked this up. Razor did not start wrestling on television until August, just a couple weeks before SummerSlam. Yeah. Ideally, what you probably do is you have him debut. But, I mean, they didn't get him. I mean, he, he didn't quit WCW until May. So there was probably some sort of period where they couldn't use him on television. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but ideally, you probably want Ray, you debut him a little bit earlier. Maybe mid he wins at SummerSlam to really get over. Yeah. He beats like, you know, like a Virgil or a Santana. And then he goes on to Savage. But... It was pretty crazy, Liam, and I know you noted this, that straight out those vignettes and after a couple squash matches, they have him out there confronting Randy Savage still as the champion. Yeah, Razor being involved this high, this quick, is very, very striking to me when I was younger, especially because it was the, again, my first time in real time seeing the new guy come in and be a star immediately. And like I said, they'd, they'd done it with DiBiase, but they hadn't done it in a long, long time where a guy comes in and he's immediately a big deal. Like Taker was the other one, obviously, where like he's in and you know yeah, this guy is he's a big deal. But even then, it wasn't like Taker came in and started working with Hogan immediately. No. You know, it, it, he he was, you know, messing around with, uh, you know, the, the, the destitute Jimmy Snooker for, for, for WrestleMania and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah he's, he's doing his thing. But this is, he's straight in. He's straight in at the top mix. He immediately becomes like the number two heel in the company like just overnight mm-hmm. like he's, he's he's higher up than sean he's higher up than kamala and everybody else is just tied for last but he's he's and that's where razor's at he's he's straight in very much with the depth issue obviously it's it's easy for him to kind of saunter into that role but um yeah i mean when he does that promo at the start of september where it's 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 this um building obviously this tile change um and it's a very slow delivery by Razor. And I feel like, he, again, he's still kind of ironing out the kinks of what he is. I, I think he was very cognizant of that accent. Yeah. He was laying that accent on really thick initially on. I mean, he was really channeling or at least trying to channel his inner uh, Al Pacino. He was. And uh, and as much as, and you know, it does a good job. It works, but it, it works much better when Savage is out there with him because they do the confrontation. Um and I think that he's he's much better in that situation where he's not just long form talking, where he's just so slow, the delivery's a little bit plodding. Doesn't feel like he again. He, he he comes out. There's a reaction. They know who he is. They like the vignettes, but they don't know how to take him yet or what what they're going to see from him. And so when the savage thing happens, it's really it's it's jarring to see Savage out there with him because he's literally just walked in off the street. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, again, it, whether it was a mistake or not to just throw him in the deep end that quickly, I don't know if that's a discussion worth having because I just I think they kind of just had to do it. Yeah, I see that. You look at the roster, you know, like it's like one of those things like, again, I go back to what I just said a minute ago. Ideally, what you do is he would have beaten a somewhat name guy uh, at SummerSlam. Yeah. Right. But I don't know that they didn't have time for that, I guess. I mean, I guess they could have still put him. I mean, if he if he debuted in uh, he made his TV debut, I believe, the first week of August. So, I mean, that's still a few weeks. I mean, he could they they, they could have put him on SummerSlam. They, they could have put him on. Honestly, he, probably he, should have. They probably should have. They should have. Yo, Heenan mentions his name on the show. Yes. So, I mean, yeah. So, they probably should have done that. So, let's get back to the title change. I wanted to just, like, introduce uh, – most people understand and know this. Obviously, obviously if you're listening to a, a, a podcast about 1992 WWF, you have a general knowledge of what goes on. But I just wanted to set the scene for Razor Ramon uh, interfering in this world title match. But let's talk about it. Ric Flair is the champion again. Randy Savage's title run, which did not do well at the box office at all, uh. is now – over um what do we think about this title change long overdue oh I, I think that's 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 for sure i think that this really is the beginning of the end of savage feeling like a current contemporary player he very much starts getting phased out after this even and though he, obviously he's, and, he, he's, and he he's feels obviously in the he feels old and he's always injured it seems yeah, yeah. I mean, he really sells that knee for a long time man yeah, and, and we're talking, I mean, like by the time, because again, it's like the tenor of how everything goes, we're like, you know, again, as we're going to get to, no surprises, but Brett's going to be the world champion within, like, not that long. So all of a sudden, it's like he's a star, but he's starting more and more to feel like yesterday's superstar. And they position him that way pretty much around the Royal Rumble and afterwards in 93. So, like, he's always, he's approaching the end of, like, his, you know, his, his final run of relevance in the eyes of the, of, of the way Vince is booking him. Um, yeah, after that, he's kind of just like the, almost kind of like this legendary character doing commentary half the time and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not great for Savage. Flair gets it back, but Flair doesn't feel particularly hot either. Um, and I've yeah. always, I, I was curious to see what you thought of this match. Dave gives it three and a quarter stars, but I, I felt like it didn't come off great. It comes out kind of flat to me with the way this is produced, partly because obviously it was taped. And so the crowd feels kind of cold and, and not super lively for it. Um, and Razor at being so... They, at first they did, though. Yeah. Like, at the opening they did. And, I mean, we've got to talk about the elephant in the room that Vince McMahon had them stop the match and redo it. Yeah. I mean, um, and Vince has been struggling with Flair's output yes. since almost like the beginning of him being there. Which is, you know, you talk about Flair, you know, is he still a big deal or not? That that hasn't helped. No. That Vince isn't, like, you know, struggling with his output, as you just said. Um, th this is just a weird title change. It was very weird. Again, another title change that does not take place on first-run television. You hear about it. Yeah. You, it's you, put the, you, you put the television on. They're like, Ric Flair is the new world champion. What? Like, when the Mountie beat Bret Hart at the start of 92, we mentioned this, yeah. there had not been an untelevised WWF title change since 86. And they, they're they doing them now all the time in 92. There was There's like six this year, isn't there? Yeah. Like, that was there, ridiculous. There was Mountie Bret, yeah. Money, LOD, yeah. uh, Disasters, 
Money Inc. Yeah. was not aired in syndication. So that's three. And this is four. This. And then, yeah. then there's obviously another one. Brett. Yeah. yeah. Brett. And then we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so that's five. That That's insane. And they're trying, you know, we keep hearing about primetime's ratings being in the toilet. I feel they're trying to do something. I feel almost that they're maybe trying to do this to help primetime. They're like, because they're like, you can see the whole match on primetime wrestling this week. But like, I feel like, okay, well, you already know what's going to happen. Yeah, tell them it, the result first. Like, what's but, but, it, like? but it's not, I mean, we talk all the time, what effect do spoilers have and stuff? You can debate that. But it, it's very clear that that, Saying, hey, you could tune into primetime and see the match in full. That didn't work because it only no. does a 2.4 rating. No. And and the fact that, <laughs> I mean, that's a warning sign if ever I've seen one. They tell everybody that this big event is happening and that doesn't you know, generate any more interest into the show than was already there. You know, um, I feel like everything about this just feels like something is off. Obviously, with a match being, you know, Vince doesn't like the match because they're not doing a match Vince wants. They do it, raises their kind of feeling out of his element. I, yeah. I, not, not, not necessarily that he, he didn't belong in the mix, but I just mean like, yeah, he's a new guy. He's, we, we barely know anything about this guy and he's there costing someone the world title. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that doesn't help. The commentary, uh, you know, I just, I, it does not feel like it lands, to me anyway. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting given how Vince didn't like the match, that he was still like, he comes across as enthusiastic on commentary. I'm not saying it's effective, but he like you would expect like Vince to just be like annoyed. Like if it was me and I was annoyed with the match, there's no <laughs> way as I could have been as enthusiastic as Vince was. I don't know. It just it feels like like you said it's long overdue, and I just feel this was something that should have been done probably already, and then yeah. they did it, and they did it not first run, and Vince hated the match, and they had to restart it, which was odd. It just, you add it all up and it's kind of a, uh, and then the fact that obviously Flair's title run doesn't last very long kind of makes it even more, uh, um, in the aftermath here, you know, we should talk about some things. Um, the WF did announce the title change at house shows immediately. Uh, Flair defends against the undertaker on September 7th. Um, also in the aftermath, uh, after razor comes back, you know, razor interferes to help, you yeah. know, Sat, Sat, Flair wins because uh, Savage passes out the figure four leg lock. Yeah. Uh, I like Flair's post-match interview. That was kind of vintage Flair. Yeah. Um, but before that, you know, we have Razor coming back to the ring and just really beating the hell out of Savage. You know, it's putting Razor over big. It's making Savage look pretty, honestly, weak, to be yeah. honest. You know, they're really making, like, the new young stud. The, the you know pardon the pun I guess of Diamond Stud <laughs> but like he's coming in just beating up the old veteran here who's had his he has had everything taken from him no more wife no more title he's um, on his last legs <laughs> yeah on his last legs is he can hardly walk Ultimate Warrior no face paint makes the save he was late arriving to the building a kind of a nice touch <laughs> yeah, uh, carries like Savage out and really the focus immediately it's funny Savage loses the title. He's more upset with Razor Ramon interfering because they obviously don't want to do Flair and Savage anymore. And it, it, it becomes Flair and Warrior. Yeah. Gazumped. Gazumped immediately. Like, <laughs> Savage, you're number two right away. Let's get Warrior in there. And now we've got Savage with you know, in a presumably hot program with a guy that cost him the belt. Warrior and Flair for the title, which is what they wanted anyway. Let's roll. And I get, again, Flair, that's another thing, too. We're... 
it's not just that the reign is short-lived, but like where they were going is so short-lived. Like yeah. Flared Warrior obviously becomes a big nothing burger for yeah. reasons we'll get into at a later date. But um, yeah, it, it just feels like something that was overdue and then has very little impact moving forward. So I think that's why this isn't memorable at all. But a WWF title change at this time period uh, was always a significant thing, and it does happen. Ric Flair is the world champion. Uh, there is an episode of Primetime Wrestling where Randy Savage and Razor Ramon are arguing. Savage threatens to make Hurricane Andrew look like, quote, a dust storm. <laughs> as the two Floridians uh, trade barbs. So, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. Flair Warrior and Savage Ramon as a a top two feud package felt stronger than Flair Savage Warrior Shango post-WrestleMania 8 or even Warrior Sid. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that the, okay. I, I, think, I think Warrior Sid, Flair Savage sounds good only when you kind of take in what they did at Mania 8 in a positive way. But if you came away, like, unfortunately, it seems like most people did, thinking, well, the story's over now, so who gives a fuck? And Warrior and Sid was based on nothing, and they didn't do anything with it, as we talked about previously. That ends up just becoming flat as hell. Shango, yeah, that's that's there. But this, it's like, okay, this has got something. Flair and the Warrior, that's, this is a unique match. We've not seen it before. You know, we, we, these two characters cross-pollinate for the first time. This is interesting stuff. And then, yeah, this, this hot new guy on the scene, you know, fresh off these vignettes, we're being told he's a big deal. He's clearly a big deal. And now we've got Savage after him. This, this feels like, okay, the embers of at least something fresh. Yes, it is. Uh, this is really, well, we get to Survivor Series, but a, a different way, a little mm -hmm. bit. But um, that's next time. That's part five. Uh, let's that's wrap right. up here, Liam. Uh, we just have a, uh, just a few more notes to say war which is junichiro tenru's new promotion after sws went under uh and the wwf they hold a joint show in tokyo on september 15th this draws about seven thousand paid to a seventeen thousand seat arena mm. actually better than anticipated but uh most of the house was drawn by the new japan wrestlers uh, not <laughs> wwf and um what interesting there's some complaints here in the newsletters that war allowed its uh performers to be kind of shown up they were pushing uh, Haku strong. He was a top heel for them, but he gets squashed by Undertaker in five minutes with a tombstone. And then the main <laughs> event, which is uh, Ric Flair defending against the defending the WWF title against uh, Tenru in a two out of three falls match. I, I believe that was uh, the, the match of the year uh, in or right up there in '83, uh, way back when. So uh, <laughs> nine years earlier, but they do a double countout and leaves the fans enraged. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. So basically, uh, yeah, no no regard whatsoever for uh, the, the Japanese culture of not liking these shitty finishes. Kind although, of a big deal. Although, didn't the Flair Tenru match that I mentioned, 83, that had a fuck finish, didn't it? Yeah, but I, I think the period where, like, the fuck finishes kind of died was when, like, Barber was just like, okay, we've had enough of this bullshit. Okay, you're right. Let's go the other direction. Because, yeah, all Japan at this point is really gaining steam by doing absolutely zero fuck finishes. Completely clean. Not, it's not even a consideration, and it's getting over massive. And now here they are in a title match, and they're getting Great point. Garbage. Great point. Now, when this joint show was announced... Dave expected the Ultimate Warrior would be WWF champion by this point. So <laughs> really, I mean, the anticipation was that this Flair run was not going to get last long. He was a total transition champion, and he was. It just was not, of course, not to uh, the to guy the we thought. 
yeah, not to the Ultimate Warrior, despite the promos uh, that we saw cut here at the end of our uh, watching. Uh, another tour of Europe. Uh, they went right back uh, to Europe in late September, Liam. Uh, ended up being another huge success, grossed millions of dollars, record number merchandise in new territory. I was like, new territory? Uh, where was this? Uh, I looked, uh, and you noted this as well, um, and then I looked. It was in Germany. Yeah, most uh, of Germany. Yeah, Sheffield, Birmingham. And this is something we're going to hit on, too, the next time. The shows were reportedly being used as tests for, quote, old-time wrestling as a new status quo house shows with every match ending in a clean pinfall. So maybe they learned something, I guess, from this... Uh, the 10 uh, finish, yeah. yeah that, 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 like, that was September 15th. This is this is after that. And uh, yeah, so it's like, okay, that didn't fucking work. Let's try the other thing. Yeah, and there is this... Again, you know, I always like to tease a little bit here, leave a little meat on the bone. There is... I'm interested, because I don't know how far in advance you are if you read it, but there's like these behind-the-scenes rule changes in WWF matches that are reported in both newsletters and get a lot of play. I'm very interested to see how evident that actually is watching the television if you wouldn't have known it. Because I can can tell you as a 12-year-old, like, I don't remember, like, although you were having, like, you know, Brett and Sean on top different people, like, I don't remember, like, the rules of WWF being markedly different or, like, the style of work changing that dramatically um, outside of Brett and Sean, I guess, being put in main event positions. So um, Mm. I'm I'm interested in in seeing this old time wrestling, um, (laughs) you know, coming to the forefront. I I think that was uh, attributed to the fact that Patterson brought Ray Stevens in as an agent, his old partner. Uh, That was this test for old time wrestling. Does this mean Vince is going to let the fans smoke in the building again? Yeah, I know. Yeah, those smoke-filled halls. There yeah. you go. I don't know. Well, you'll have to wait and see here until uh, the, <laughs> the next time we record. But uh, it, the reports are that Flair's main events uh, were drawing Ray reviews put on at the end of the night uh, instead of before intermission. He's working 30 minutes against Savage and Bret Hart, winning clean every night as opposed yeah. to the screw jobs he would do in the U.S. Uh, this is still over in the European tour. And given that all the arenas were sold out and filled with crazed fans, the quality hey. of these shows, <laughs> well, I, I think that he means it in a positive way. <laughs> the quality of these shows, I, I guess, is higher as everyone was pumped to go out and perform yeah. over in Europe. Yeah, well, I mean, and again, it's one of those things where they can experiment freely over here because they know we're going to keep coming back. So even if they, 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 they have the ability to kind of play around and try some new things. And we'll close here. That being said, despite uh, the quality of the shows uh, reportedly being higher, uh, even higher quality is still pretty crappy by uh, newsletter <laughs> standards, apparently. <laughs> that, that, their words, not mine. I, I love how they're like, yeah, the fans were happy, but, you know, it's still very good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then they, like, do this, like, complete, like, 180. Many, many fans in attendance are complaining about the shows being terrible until Flair saved it at the end. That sounds like Dave being paid off by somebody in Charlotte, North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) I digress. Yeah, yeah, he he does have favorites. He does does the Flair. And our last sentence, or at least my last sentence in the notes is this. In general, Bret Hart was the most popular babyface every night. We will close there. Yeah, that feels appropriate. I, uh... I, I should I actually should have researched this, so I apologize in advance. Was Wire on these, this tour? 
Okay. Cool. I'm, a, I'm actually upset here. I, I, I forgot to read these Razor Ramon quotes from WF Magazine, so we're not done yet. I'm going to do that because I think it'll fit better here. <laughs> Flair and Savage, Bret Hart, mm-hmm. Papa Shango. So, no, it, it, it appears that he was not on them. Kiel, Germany, Flair and Bret, Randy. and No, it, it seemed like the four main event guys were Flair, Brett, Savage, and Shango getting mixed up. Undertaker was drawing uh, apparently no one uh, to Fort Myers, Florida at the Lee Civic Center September 27th against Kamala. Yeah, Warrior was headlining <laughs> Warrior was headlining in the states against Kamala around this time. Oh my word. Okay, well that makes sense why Brett's the most popular guy on the tour. Yeah, so yeah, Warrior didn't come over cuz he let's see Munich, Germany, they're there on October 1st and October 2nd Warriors in Scranton, PA. Uh, at, at a Catholic Youth Center against Kamala. Oh, that classic venue. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he he did not participate over there. Interesting. Well, there you go. Brett, Brett wins the hearts of, uh, of everybody over here. Well, it only makes sense, his return after SummerSlam, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, by the way, Miami Cubans dish on Razor Ramon. <laughs> 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 Straight from the pages of the WF magazine. I tell my daughter, don't go near Razor Ramon. He is in the ring like he was on the streets. A mean one. A bully. He's no good. He's a bad one. Malhente. Razor. <laughs> he gets what he wants by brute force. Yes. <laughs> this was a... Uh, this I, wish, I wish he would go back to Cuba. <laughs> wow. There's that. So, yep. Bret Hart, most popular babyface... Uh, on these European shows, and uh, people in the WF magazine want Razor Ramon to go back to Cuba. I think that's where we uh, call it quits here today, Liam. <laughs> that's where we draw the line, and uh, yeah. that, that's where we're leaving it for this point. Obviously, the next part of this series, we're going to be proceeding forward. I believe we're covering the, are we covering the rest of the year with the next part, Kyle. I believe we are. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We will, of course, talk about a certain shocking WWF title change, and... Um, Something that's pretty interesting, obviously, here we talked about a show being near and dear to your heart taking place. Uh, you know, it's a very American thing of me to say right in your backyard, I'm sure. But um, uh, we will be talking on the next show about a pay-per-view that was in my backyard and that, I, and that I attended personally. I was at Survivor Series 92 in the crowd. So uh, that's kind of a fun uh change of roles there and um, a lot of wackiness to close up 1992 with uh, what will be a massive coming and going section. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, there was, there was some landmark shifts coming in this promotion in the next part. So do not miss it folks. Thank you very much for joining us for this odyssey. Kyle, as always, the notes, the conversation, excellent job, my man. Thank you very much for doing this part four of our series and night night two in the WWF. Any closing comments? I think I've said enough, quite frankly. It's very, <laughs> it's very rare that you could that uh, I'm out of words, but I am out of words here today. We uh, did. Was this a record-setting show in terms of length? No, we did one that almost hit like four hours on the uh, on on uh, previously for sure. <laughs> Oh, that's right. That's right. But there there was a moment, uh, I'll be honest, uh, you can cut this out of the show. You, you don't have to. But like, I was like, dude, this, this is going to be a marathon. But we, uh, as always, we kind of hit that same uh, sweet spot of time we always do. And this was great. This was a very good show. And I'm, I hope, because I know that so many people listen, obviously, uh, are in the UK. I hope that uh, this was a nice trip down memory lane for what I'm sure is one of their fondest memories of childhood, Summer 792. 
absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure going back. And thank you very much, loyal listeners, for sticking with us the entire show. And we will, of course, be back. Part five coming up. Myself and Kyle will be reuniting here uh, around the Oaken table. So thank you very much. For the great Kyle Ross, I am Liam O'Rourke, and we are out of here. Talk to you again real soon. Peace.